Every minute, the terror gets closer. Cooper, you gotta help me out! Every second, the tension gets deadlier. It's all right, don't shoot, don't shoot! Every moment could be your last. George Romero's all-new Night of the Living Dead, rated R, starts Friday at select theaters. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm Jay Blake, and with me, as always, is the loyal, <laughs> loyal, rambunctious, on the spectrum, handsome devil, Dion. Dion Baya. Dion How are you, everybody? Baya. Nice to be back. Nice to be back, everybody. How's everybody? The band's looking great. I love what you did with everybody. Looks great. Looks really, really good. The sets are looking nice. We really uh, good. Really good, Blake. We still. Uh, I feel like we still don't know what's going on with Saturday Night Movie sleepovers, but you know, we did one in September, and we thought it was fun. And with October right around the corner, and everybody knows how much I love my October Halloween extravaganza. Blake loves his Halloween October extravaganza. That we would uh, we pump out one more. Maybe more. We'll see. Who knows? <laughs> and uh, we're today we're covering a movie that uh, I very closely associate with Dion because he's the one that showed it to me way back in '97 or '98. I don't remember this, but you you've said that to me before <laughs> that I I showed this to you. Yeah, we. It was one of there was like two times when we lived when we were in college. We lived in this suite with the. Uh, I guess six other guys so a total of eight people yeah and there was a common area and bedrooms and a bathroom and a common bathroom in the dorm area yeah but it was like a weird little apartment in the dorms there was no kitchen or anything but whatever good but we had a little living enough we had a little living like a little living room and we had a tv in there that i, I think you brought up Right from your dad's house or something from your parents' house. I, I, I was able to finagle. My dad let me bring the old quasar cabinet, the one I grew up with. That was the one that I was born onto and watched all my, you know, carpet watching while playing with me at GI Joe's. And, and to think about in retrospect today, it's probably not bigger. T, the TV screen is probably not bigger than the laptop I'm talking to you through right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was like a 19-inch, you know, 480i uh, wooden cabinet model. And uh, I had to carry that up like four flights of stairs. Me, Haley Love, and Ray uh, brought that son of a bitch. I was like, be careful, everybody, because I didn't want anything to break either. Because at that time, you know, that's it was what, 30, 25 years old. But uh, and, in, the, uh, in the whole school year that we lived together in this, in this suite with this group of guys, I can only remember twice that we kind of all got together and, and we watched a movie. Or at least most of us got together and just sat unlike that crappy wooden couch <laughs> yep, yep, yep. spread out on the floor and uh yeah. watched a movie and one and one was uh this movie that uh this like heavy metal guy that lived in the room next to ours his name was samir samir uh, samir from um uh scarsdale he's he's samir's the guy who introduced us to the candlelight but i digress yes and uh 
he wanted to watch restaurant and he wanted to watch blood sucking freaks and we watched that and then the uh the only other movie i remember is you you brought out uh day of the dead and we all sat and watched day of the dead the whole crew watched day of the dead most of us if not all of us yeah and at that time i remember i had like one of those like special edition vhs clamshell edition tapes you know it was like the widescreen you know uh i still have that somewhere you know uh, black clamshell edition this might even be, so this may a- have even been before that i don't remember oh then if it was then I, that <laughs> might have been i had that on tape i had it on a three taper you know um my well we, we haven't said what we're doing this week either um we're doing george romero's day of the dead from 1985 um and uh my history with that is that i was always um a big 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 night of living dead fan because zombie movies just scared the the crap out of me and i always lived near a cemetery growing up so um i always had uh, eyes my window always i think i've said this before i always saw a cemetery through my window so i'd see thriller or i'd see like any kind of zombie movie and then at night you know old dion's there with like you know uh, ready to take that like look like home alone ready to take the zombies on you know shit in his pants so every the, time your parents so- bought a house they were like can the kids see a cemetery from the bedroom? <laughs> you know, we don't want to pay for a babysitter, so we figure what we'll do is we'll just scare the shit out of him, <laughs> put him in his room for the night, point the the, the the graveyard out, go out, and, you know, he'll stay in his room because he's going to have emotional problems in the closet. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a good marketing tool. So zombie movies like The Last Man on Earth, the Vincent Price movie, the zombies coming back always scared the shit out of me. Black and White Night, Living Dead from uh, 68. And then... Uh, in middle school, high school, I, ha- I had a friend of mine, Greg, who was the guy who I did all the horizon model making with. And we used to do the vinyl models, putting those um, figurines together of all the superheroes or classic movie monsters. I was big into that in that era of eighth grade through high school. Uh, him and I watched a lot of horror movies. So he's the one who I got. I saw Dawn of the Dead with for the first time. And then I finally saw Day of the Dead with. And Day of the Dead, those are movies you can account to. Remember... Day of the Dead, especially when I was little, going into like Pathmark or the local grocery store, and then going to wherever the pharmacy was, and then looking at the videotapes you had to rent there. Day of the Dead, along with like uh, Escape from New York and some other covers, was there, and it was always the movie that looked so fucked up. Like you, you know, you can maybe not let your mom see you pick up the tape cover, look at it, turn it over, look at the back, and see how crazy and scary it looks, and then you put it down, and you're gonna go rent Care Bears the movie or something like that, you know? So Day of the Dead was always had such a big cloud around it because it, uh, it was so hard R, you know? So by the time I saw that in high school, it was really something. And to this day, I still have that kind of um, feeling and, 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 and passion for it. So then we must have, because getting into freshman year, you and I going through all of our stuff, um, you know, we watched The Thing and stuff like that. I feel like I guess that's why maybe this came up. I was like, oh, I got to really fuck that movie we can watch. And, you know, maybe I brought out my three taper, whatever it was on. Yeah, well, we, we watched it. We've covered Romero a few times on the show. He uh, passed. We did a special Romero episode, kind of uh, just threw yeah. one together. We met the, like, kind of the, the day or a day later or something. And we, and we uh, just got together to chat about him. Uh, he was, and I've said, I'm sure I've said this. We've covered Creep Show on the show. We covered Dawn of the Dead, uh, and I'm sure I, I, you know, I'm sure that I'm just going over stuff I've already said. But I didn't grow up with Romero movies. Like I remember Carpenter movies, uh, and I've told stories about, you know, I remember watching 
the thing, you know, we've, we covered a lot of Carpenter movies, so I'm sure, but there's like, I re- there's just certain filmmakers that I, I remember as a kid and I didn't realize they all made the same movies, but for some reason, like Romero movies just completely passed me by. I didn't see creep show until I was well into my twenties. Uh, so I may not have seen an entire Romero movie until I met Dion and Dion's love for uh, Romero zombie movies were definitely, was definitely kind of big, made a big impact on me and had a big influence as I was getting, you know, balls deep into horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, freshman year when we met, uh, it was, you know, that was definitely part of it. So I've always equated Romero's movies to Dion and over the years, and especially in recent years, Romero has very slowly but surely like crept his way up my list of favorite filmmakers and for some reason when i back when we started doing this show and i started being asked to do guest spots on other shows for some reason everybody wanted to talk to me about george romero and so i ended up because i because of my i always had a deep love for the movie martin ever since i first saw it in like 97 Uh, yeah you introduced me to that movie and and so i started being asked to talk about martin and then uh on wrong reel i did a big supersized episode where james hancock and i talked about all the romero movies that weren't the dead uh wow and so i don't know so like in recent years i feel like having to do research for those podcasts and watching romero's movies kind of over and over again for those for these guest appearances refreshing my memory of the movies i've really come to like really appreciate him as a as a filmmaker and uh you know he's definitely become one of my favorite filmmakers and this movie is one that kind of equally it was was an acquired taste for me i didn't love it when dion and i first watched it together uh in the late 90s but i revisited it several years ago when i was living in a house in port chester with one of my roommates there and i and i liked it a lot when i saw it then and now i've watched it many times since then and Every time I watch this movie, kind of like my love for this movie just grows. And yeah. uh, the score by John Harrison has become not just one of my favorite horror movie scores, but just one of my favorite scores of all time. And I was very honored and privileged to be able to talk to John at length about his music for this movie and Creep Show for my second Score to Death book, Score to Death 2, more conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. And John's awesome. And for that book, I also talked to Donald Rubenstein, who scored Martin. So. I ended up getting this, like a lot of insight into working with Romero, which just made me love Romero even more. And so, <laughs> uh, when it came Halloween time and Dan's like, well, what movie do you want to do? You know, the, you know, you're more excited about the Halloween than, than I am. So you choose one and I'll let you know if it's something I want to cover. And I said, what about day of the dead? You know, as I know it's a movie we both love, like I said, my, my love for it goes back to Dion for showing it to me. So that brings us to date so we're all caught up <laughs> that um that's funny you said that because um i would the night before or so i was just watching like pluto tv and it was on and i hadn't seen the thing in 20 years i was like this would be a great movie to cover on the podcast so then the next day or two when you said hey let's do day of the dead that's why i was reply back like that's amazing let's put it down <laughs> we're gonna do it uh that'll be freaking great i'll, um, I'll it's weird go ahead yeah. i'm sorry no go i was gonna say like i'll always have a special spot in my heart and a huge love for night of the living dead the original um 
And Deanne also introduced me to the 1990 remake of that. And I've come to really appreciate that movie in recent years as well. But, uh, I'll always love night of the living dead. And there's a part of me that will always say like, that's my favorite zombie movie. That's my favorite Romero zombie movie. But there's also like, that's, that's like my left lobe on on the right lobe of my brain. It's like, no day. The dead is my favorite Romero zombie movie. You, it's you know it's you bring up so many good points blake <laughs> it's like you know growing up um uh my friend marvin who's the guy the, the kid who i used to draw with and he's the kid that opened up the uh, he called me when george romero died and he said the master's gone and that's we put that at the top i just said hey i have a friend of mine from you know childhood who called me so we put that at the top of the special as opening our special for romero romero uh he's the one who introduced me to like i think Maybe Dawn of the Dead and especially Creepshow and, 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 of course, Tales from the Crypt and all those movies and stuff like that. So growing up, I knew Night of the Living Dead, um, and then I knew Creepshow, and then you know, you, I, know, I knew Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and then what really got me restarted on the, the being properly scared of zombies and zombie movies was the remake, the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. When that came out and I was reading comics at the time, they'd have adverts in the back of the comic, and it'd be just a real scary poster. And uh, I saw that, and that scared the shit out of me again because I live near a cemetery and stuff like that. And it was, you know, and to date, I used to say I thought that was some of the best um, Savini makeup, or even though he didn't technically do the makeup, but just the zombie look of the movies. And I know people think that movie has its flaws, but I really, really, really enjoyed that. And then that made me go back, and then seeing the black and white Night of Living Dead, it's like I, I, ha- I like kind of divorced that from everything else with the different stages of all these these movies. And uh, Dawn, I love, and I know it has a special place in everyone's heart, and there's certainly a lot of stuff that I, I think is amazing about it. But Day, when I saw Day, Day, I used to always say Day and the remake and Night were like the standard of how you make zombies look. And, uh, I mean, the bub. And it, 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 there's so much about Day that I love. And um, getting... And it was almost kind of a letdown, I'll be honest, when, when all these, when the revitalization of the zombie genre came out in the 2000s, and then, uh, it, you know, the remake, I loved, I think it was that Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead? Yeah. Um, I really, really enjoyed that, seeing that in the theater on a Saturday matinee, and that made me go back and actually have a, a, a fall in love again with the Return of the Living Dead films, because I never, I was such a snob, I was like, you know, your zombies cannot be talking to you, cannot be running... <laughs> You know, marathon runners just want your brains. But after seeing the remake of Dawn, I was like, you know what? Me, I kind of justified it in my head. Maybe rigor, they're slow for 12 hours, and then when rigor goes off, they're... So um, I have a huge affinity also now for like the original Return to the Living Dead. Um, but when the, the, there was that revitalization of zombie movies of 28 Days Later, like then Romero came with Land of the Dead. I was like all excited, like, okay, he's going to come back and he's going to give us, he's going to, you know, the master is going to come back and give us the, this is how it's done. And then... Uh, Land of the Dead was very underwhelming for me, and so you know I know he made then Diary of the Dead, and he, there might there's um, Land of the no there's another survival no, one more survival of the dead. So I still kind of look at Night, Dawn, and Day as the trilogy on itself, and I know there's it's almost like the Star Wars movies. Yeah, you know there's other ver- there's other ones too, and then if you take the remake of Night and then that remake of Dawn, and they remade Day too, which was uh, I thought was terrible with I think Nick Cannon's in it, Ving Rhames some other people and it really had nothing to do overall with the remake of day but um yeah these these movies were my shit growing up because the along with Jason Voorhees um the zombies scared the poops out of me 
Now, before we jump into the movie discussion, this is all preamble, getting us all set in the table for our yep. personal relationships. Uh, I would like to talk about something very personal, which is uh, right now, uh, if you're listening to this during October of 2022, uh, running until November 1st of 2022, I'm trying to raise money to make Scored to Death, uh, the dark art of scary movie music over on Kickstarter. You've gotten off to a bit of a slow start, but if uh, you happen to be listening to this and you, you want to support uh, me and the Scored to Death uh, franchise, uh, please consider going over to Kickstarter and checking out uh, Scored to Death, The Dark Art of Scary Movie Music. We're not trying to raise a ton of money, but uh, enough to get you know really going. I've already shot five interviews for it. It's going to be I'm trying to make the definitive documentary about uh, horror film music based on my score to death books. Uh, I'm really pleased with, you know, the way everything's looking so far in terms of the footage that we got, but it's expensive to fly across country and shoot in LA. And, uh, you know, if we can raise enough money, I'd love to go shoot other places like Japan and Italy to talk about, to talk to composers that just aren't American. And, uh, we have a lot of really cool tiers that, uh, you know, as rewards for your pledges, including um, co-hosting an episode of Scored to Death Radio with me. And, nice. uh, you know, we have autographed books, but the one I'm really excited about is uh, a Scored to Death record, which is going to be available exclusively through the Kickstarter campaign. Right now, I'm calling it Scored to Death, a tribute to horror film music, volume one. And it's uh, it's going to be available in limited edition vinyl and limited edition limited edition CD, and it's got an all star lineup of musicians covering horror movie themes, including Steve Moore from the band Zombie, the composer Wojciech Golchewski, uh, Alan Howarth, longtime collaborator of John Carpenter, the Blair Brothers, who are a great composing duo right now from Philadelphia. They've done some great movies. The band Voyager, the band Anima Morte, uh, Holly Amber Church, who uh, is a composer that I love. She's in my second book. She's in the documentary. Uh, Richard Christie, who was the drummer for the heavy metal band Death. He's got his band, uh, Charred Walls of the Damned. Now, some people may know him as the master of phony phone calls for the Howard Stern show. But, uh, uh, and if I'm forgetting anybody, I apologize. I'm kind of talking off the top of my head, but uh, we've got a great lineup of eclectic musicians and composers coming together to support the film. They're doing it out of their, the goodness of their heart. Some of them are even working on the tracks right now. And if we don't raise the money for Kickstarter, that means we don't get any of the money, which means that I can't produce the record and they've already, they've <laughs> wasted their time and I can't make the movie. Uh, so follow me on, on social media at score to death, and you can see videos of, uh, the stuff I've shot so far, keep up with everything related to the campaign. You can join the mailing list at score to death.com. And again, the movie's called score to death, the dark art of scary movie music, and it's running a Kickstarter campaign now through November 1st, 2022. So please check it out. And if you are interested and you can please, uh, support the film and and dion has a valid passport so if you want dion to go along with blake to japan or italy on these wacky <laughs> adventures we can be do we can do episodes we can make that of happen. saturday night movie sleepovers 
live from Japan. Yeah, we, we won't just say we're we're big in Japan. We'll actually be there and doing <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and I think this is a great, um, certainly a great project to get behind. And um, you know, your passion for everything like this and uh, the stuff you have already looks amazing. So th- the fact that you're producing a record and how involved that is, uh, a limited edition stuff that's you know going to be like on vinyl as well. I mean, come on. Yeah. I'm going to be spinning on a Saturday night. I'm going to be putting on my score today. Hold on, everybody. And I've heard some of the left I've heard, side. I've heard some of the music so far that some of these guys are doing and guys and gals. And uh, it sounds amazing. And I'm really excited. I'm no, like awesome. almost more excited for the album than I am the movie. And, and that's, <laughs> like the movie's good, but <laughs> I've been living with that material for five years. I'm going to be, you know. And, uh, you know, that's the thing I'm trying to get across is that. It's really like two awesome projects in one Kickstarter campaign, you know, like how you get two, there's an opportunity to have two really cool things produced. And the this. hard thing too, is that you're, it's, it's almost like a mom and pop business. You're trying to do it on your own. You don't have any big companies backing you. So you don't have the, you know, you don't have all these other companies helping you, promoting you. So it's really just you get, you know, uh, taking it to the arches and, you know, taking the message to the street and, you know, knocking on doors and trying to go on podcasts and tell people, listen. And on Twitter, who will listen, or all these other, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram, hey, this is out here, please support it. And it's just hard. You're just in the town square on a soapbox, just like, <laughs> everybody plays less than. Yeah. And unfortunately, the the initial launch, the first few days uh, have been rough. So um, it's just trying it's to get the word because, out. Yeah. Even if you can't, even if you can't give money to the project, please you know, you can also support the project just by spreading the word and sharing some of our social media posts about it. Just letting people know that it exists because that's been the hardest part. Uh, cause I think there are people out there that will get excited about it and, but they need to know it exists. So even if you can't give money to the project, you can be equally as helpful in supporting the project just by helping to spread the word about it. Yeah. You gave a thing, right? You said if people, it's like, if, you get everybody to give like 10 or it's like that, you know, five or $10, you could be well in your way, you know? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. If everybody just, you know, if, even if everybody just up. gave a little bit of money, if everybody did yeah. it, this thing would be, you know, we'd be funded. Yeah. To so parents, so kids go to your parents' purse, take the money out <laughs> and send it to PO box <laughs> score to death, New York, New York, one Oh, Oh, three, five, no change, please. Kids, no change. Um, but it, I, I mean, definitely something to get, to get behind the support. Yeah. I mean, it's, but all this is, you know, tied to my love for horror movies. And like I said, I, I, you know, I don't have, I only have a few composers lined up so far for it because I, I, I didn't want to start lining up a million composers because I, I didn't know how much money I was going to have. I didn't know how many trips I yeah. was going to make. So I mean, the cast is great so far, but it can, it's only going to grow with, with the funding. Um, and so, then out of your two books, for people who don't know the two books, highlight who you've had and, and your, you know, run off the names of who you've had in your, both your books. Oh. Because those well, are fucking huge names. Yeah. Well, the first book, we have John Carpenter and Alan Howarth, Christopher Young, who's also going to be in the movie for sure. Alan Howarth's going to be in the movie for sure. We, uh, Charles Bernstein, who did Nightmare, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Cujo. He, I interviewed him already for the movie. Harry Manfredini, who did the Friday the 13th movies. Uh, you know, all the major, at least American franchise, horror franchises are covered. Um, the first book even had members from the, of the band Goblin, like Claudio Simonetti and Fabio Fritzi, who scored Fulci's movies. 
uh, and the second book, uh, have some Japanese composers, the guy that scored the ring, uh, guy who scores Takashi Miyake's movies like audition, uh, just an amazing, as I mentioned earlier, John Harrison, who scored tonight's movie, day of the dead, uh, Donald Rubenstein. Um, I just, I, there's 30 composers all in all who've been in featured in the books. And then there's more that I've been featured on score to death podcast. So, um, obviously it's a, it's a, it's a subject that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, and I've been trying to get it off the ground for a while, but, uh, and the other guy that I like from, um, night gallery, not night gallery. Oh my gosh. I'm blanking on his name from, um, dark shadows. Who you, oh you, yeah. Uh, uh, Rob, Bob, Bob Colbert, Robert Colbert, who, uh, probably his yeah. last interview, I'm going to say. Yeah. Cause he was in his nineties and you think it, you know, just amazing. Uh, and I've seen him do a ton of other stuff afterward. I'm like, Oh, that's the guy Blake interviewed, you know? Yeah. So it's like amazing. You, you were talking to people, you know, that was, had a uh, career in it. Like and it may be, and it may be, I don't know. It may be his most in-depth interview. He passed away sadly in the early 2020 before we were at, at all, what age? like 96 or something and uh yeah uh and he died of like pneumonia and i wonder now if it was like early covid yeah we weren't all up to date on covid at that point um but also john masari is in the second book he scored um killer clowns from outer space and uh Ray Bradbury Theater. He did the he did the theme song for the Ray Bradbury Theater. I'm Ray Bradbury, and I like to write. So Sorry. it's a it's a really amazing and eclectic uh, group of composers, and um, and we're hoping to bring a bunch of them over to the film to continue. But uh, so uh, don't want to talk too much about that because today we're here to talk about the great George A. Romero, the great Tom Savini, and. Uh, the third of what we all affectionately consider Romero's dead trilogy. As Dion said, there's more movies, but really <laughs> it's the trilogy. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I thought the, even the concept, I was really digging the diary of the dead concept and all that. I thought that was pretty cool. you know, having it be all found footage, almost kind of. A movie. And, um, we haven't done night yet either, just because we, we've been, uh, I'm so, um, like, I don't know what to do because I have such an affinity for the 1990 and then the original. And then we were even going to try to crowdfund us going to Monroeville or no, Evansville <laughs> Cemetery and, and um, you know, record from inside a car in the cemetery, which would just scare the living shit out of me. I'm not even kidding. You know? Yeah. I got to go to the uh, Evan City, I think. Evan City. Yeah. The cemetery. We went out, I went out there, filmed something. A TV show I was trying to sell that unfortunately never happened, but I went out there with Michael C. Morona, our boy, our old roommate, who um, who joined us, who had joined us for the Enter the Dragon episode. I yeah, Saturday night sleepovers, and uh, of uh, Pete and Pete fame and um, Home Alone and Slackers, a lot of stuff. He's got a great resume, Mister Morona, and it was. It really was, there was, there was something special about walking around that cemetery because you know, like that's where the modern zombie fucking was born was right there. Well, I'm going to have to get a handgun permit in Pennsylvania because I'm not going to go there <laughs> unarmed. Dion will end up starting to shoot a night with some guy walking by. That's why it's so scary. The remake at the beginning, when you see that guy and he's like, I'm sorry. You know how scary that is? Like what's going on with that guy? So 
That'd be me. I'd end up killing somebody. <laughs> no, Dion, that was just the old man Jenkins who's the town drunk. Uh, but it's just scarce. So we haven't covered Night of the Living Dead yet because we just don't know what to do. But we did Dawn uh, some years ago in Halloween. And then uh, we've, like you said, we've done Creep Show and we've done, I think we've done Savini. We did like Escape um, Evasion USA, like some Savini he did just um, squibs and effects for. Maniac. Um, Covered Maniac me. we did, yeah, which is fantastic. I'm sure and we've I talked like about Savini on the show before, because right around this time that we saw this, that Dion showed me this movie, separately, away from everyone else in the suite, Dion and I were diving deep into the early works of Tom Savini and having a, maybe oh, yeah. our maybe our first kind Proto of like, <laughs> sleepovers, like sleepover program, like film program. Yeah, we were going up, Blake would, because I, I, my family lived closer from college. I was about an hour away where Blake was about two, two and a half, or two, three hours away in Albany. I was in Connecticut. So we, he'd come up with me on a weekend and I'd go to the video store I worked at and we would just get, we were just looking for old, you know, because the, the video store I had, which was a mom and pop regional video store in Connecticut, had a lot of older titles. So we, uh, and I would remember these titles that we just gathering dust there, you know, me growing up and seeing them all. So we rented there the burning. We rented uh, the prowler. Um, we broke the prowlers. To, we were the last ones to watch the uh, Tommy K's um, North, the the store's uh, edition of the prowler uh, in, in the greater Hamden, New Haven area. That that's been you know that was like the original tape from the eighties. That when we you know if we were wound it, the damn thing snapped on us or something. And then we had to do surgery. We were down on my dad's workbench. We took the thing apart, and remember that? We you know, and I had it in the vice grip, and we were trying to put it back together for any future people who may want to we took the watch VA, the prowler. We took the VHS cassette apart, down in, on the, literally on the workbench in the basement. Yeah, we, we put it in my dad's. They had like a vice grip on the bench, and then you were helping me. And we, we stripped my dad's like eyeglass screwdriver, you know, taking the, t <laughs> taking the screws out, and then trying to figure out the mechanics of getting the tape to work, you know. And then we, uh, uh, yeah. we scotch-taped the the t the broken tape back spliced it together <laughs> yeah we spliced it with scotch tape and it and it survived a rewind and then i think what happened was the next time you know it didn't it so it was always um what, what we used to i forget what we used to have the term called it when they were like defective um and uh when i you know was working there i'd see it in the defective piles like oh it's a sad day but we so we we watched the burning we watched prowler i think we watched maniac together right yeah. maybe um maniac um, martin was around that time martin uh you showed me martin martin's fantastic uh and um um a lot of a lot of stuff of that era so and then we've covered that stuff here and uh certainly films like maniac and creep show and and um and uh to a lesser extent the burning and the prowler are just such fundamental awesome movies that i feel like nowadays Certainly, like the creeper, uh, the prowler, or the burning, maybe not be as widely known or regarded nowadays. I don't know, but it's just you know the effects that in that uh, are so great and amazing, and it's just seeing watching Day of the Dead and seeing the stuff that's done in Day of the Dead is just like I don't know. It's just like amazing to see the craftsmanship that is. Um, I don't know. Even when I watched Walking Dead, I didn't care for some of the effects they were doing so because like, a lot of it now is dependent on cgi you know it's a little cheaper to put stuff in post so you have like um you know blood splatter from a gunshot or even seeing muzzle blasts on guns or squib effects and stuff like that so m sometimes you could see that i used to kind of pick that out in the walking dead when i see it so to see stuff like this doing old school completely with squibs completely with practical effects there's not really 
virtually any post that's going to requ require you know some sort of uh, effect to, to enhance the go the gore. It, it was amazing seeing this stuff, you know, and that's why it was so. I mean, this that's another thing that this was really regarded as a gory, gory movie. I mean, this was like it's like up there with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which isn't really that gory at all, but it had such a a cloud around it. Like you know, you didn't want your kids watching this stuff, you know. So seeing this and seeing the level of um, uh, the stuff they're able to accomplish with just all the effects and all that, it just just really mind blowing how you know they've learned from the mistakes of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, with the with the blood looking on camera or 3M blood or even just the, the blue or the green makeup that, I don't know if it was just for lower budget purposes or they didn't test out the stock of film and how the zombie looks will look at, on the film, but it seemed like they really got it right for Day of the Dead. Yeah, I mean, even Savini, I think maybe even to this day, considers Day of the Dead kind of like his masterpiece in terms of the effects, that it really was yeah. like the culmination of a lot of things. And, I, and if I don't keep saying it wrong, it was that what that optic nerve company, right? That uh, Nicotero, uh, they created, and that's the technically the people who did the effects for Savini's remake of Night of Living yeah. Dead, right? K, K and B. So, Although, K and B. yeah, it's a little bit. That's the thing is, you know, before this movie, Savini had like one or two assistants helping him yeah. through through all these movies. But for Day of the Dead. I mean, and we're going to get a little bit into it in that the, the scope of what Romero originally wanted to do with Day of the Dead, and even with what Day of the Dead ended up being, the scope was so much bigger, especially with the effects, than the previous movies, that this was the first time Savini hired like a team of people to come in. And uh, Dion's not wrong about uh, optic nerve, because he, he thought he was talking about K&B, but the truth is, like we have Howard Berger and uh, Greg Nicotero from that go on to make, uh, well, they go on to work on Evil Dead 2, but then even after that, they go on to create K&B. But then someone who was someone who worked for Opt, who became, let me get this straight, someone who then went on to work at Optic Nerve, he also worked on Day of the Dead. And uh, I don't know if it's the same guy, but some of the guys, somebody from Day of the Dead went on to like work on the T-Rex for Jurassic Park, you know, with Stan yeah. Winston. Like it was kind of, they were the top guys at the time, but then after this movie, when they went on to do their own thing, they became like really the top guys of Hollywood, not just the top yeah. guys in, in horror. And, um, I mean, the, Savini, um, looking that up, he even borrowed from Carl Fulton and other effects artists, uh, bodies he'd used from a movie called Gorky Park, which was an eighties, I think maybe Lee Marvin's last movie. Uh, it's a Russian spy thriller. And he went up to Ryan, New York to get those. And that's funny because that's where we went to college. And they spent like a long weekend up there, evidently. Because evidently, when you, back then when you're making molds and stuff and everything, practically, uh, you know, if you're starting from scratch and having to build these molds, it's expensive and cumbersome and time-consuming where you could just, if someone's already done that already for whatever movie they're doing and they have them laying around because the movie's over, hey, can I just rent, borrow, or just come up and take cast of the mold, body molds you have of people already that we can build effects around it? So it kind of just cuts the process in half of whatever you're doing. So Savini went up to Rye, New York, which is just in you know Westchester near the Connecticut border, where uh, funny enough is where Blake and I went to college. So it, I only bring it up because evidently they were using the Gorky Park, which is funny because that's a quirky Russian you know spy thriller from the '80s movie, and they used these bodies to make these molds that would that they then did the effects you know later on to put on the actors and stuff like that. Um, but uh. It, 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 it just, I, I would even argue that, like I said, the, I like the, his 
his look a lot of the remake of Night. But there's so much nuance in this and in, in, in Day of the Dead and what they were trying to accomplish and all that. Uh, and then, like you said, these people go on to become these these huge, huge in uh, other, you know, Nicotero and, and, and was it K, K and B? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, that, it, that's incredible, the stuff that they've gone on to do and, you know, coming roots from all these movies here. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's no surprise that eventually Savini ends up creating a makeup school because it, he kind of always had one, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. It was like these guys that went on to be Hollywood's like, greatest effects artists and makeup artists were, they were basically shuttling through like the college of Tom Savini anyway, just in like in an apprenticeship yeah. form. But, you know, so or like vis a vis Dick Smith too. They, you know, working on like or Corman movies or a guy, guys like Dick Smith pioneers who would hide what they were doing. And then Savini and people like that learn. And then Savini then took that approach too. you want to learn what to do. Come work for me. I'm not going to be an asshole or whatever. I'll get you around. And, and then, uh, when we were growing up in high school, there was that show, uh, movie magic on discovery channel. And they would have different episodes. They highlighted the episode that made me want to go watch demolition man. They had all these different episodes of, and I remember they did a Savini episode and he remember that's where you heard he was the splatter, the king of gore or the, whatever his term was. So growing up prior to even me meeting Blake, Savini was such a, a huge name because we knew who he was in the industry. Um, you know, he was like a God at the time. Doing yeah. Stuff I mean, like Savini this. would go on Letterman and. Yeah, like show off some of the effects and stuff. I mean, there and was then a he ends up being in um uh, from Dust Till Dawn, Sex Machine. You know, which was we knew who he was. We're like, oh my god, it's Tom Savini. You know, yeah, there was a period of time there in the eighties, and we've talked about special effects for hours on this show. But there was this period in the eighties where, like, the technology of how to do things catches up with the creativity of the people trying to do it. And that's when we start to get everything from, you know, star, it, it kind of, in, in some ways kind of starts with star Wars and that the, you know, they, they start pushing the envelope in such a way that the, that the tech and start creating the technology to make George Lucas's vision for star Wars become a reality with, uh, industrial light magic and, and stuff. And not, not so much the makeup effects, but just the idea of visual effects. But then by like the late seventies into the early eighties, when we start the advent of like, fo you know, foam latex and, yeah. and stuff and, and ways to do squibs and squibs and the ways to do the prosthetic makeups. That's why we see, that's why there's horror ends up kind of really become horror was always, you know, every Linda Blair going back to, was it Jack Pierce? Yeah, Jack Pierce and Lon Chaney Jr. I mean, Lon Chaney and then Senior. later Lon Chaney yeah, yeah. Jr. I mean, makeups were always a big deal for for horror movies because monsters and things were always such a part. But it, of it. it was always such; it was more cumbersome when you had Lon Chaney Senior doing it to himself, or Jack Pierce having a guy. Boris Karloff would sit there for hours, you know, because they're putting on, and it was, um, you know, a different kind of material. And then, like you're saying, when Dick Smith in the '70s kind of pioneers foam latex, and, and it almost makes it more accessible. It almost becomes like the social media where you can do. It, people are more able to do it do it at home with the recipe to make it right. And then you're able to, with makeup, make it look so realistic where it almost bumps up in the seventies, the level of believability on screen of gore that you don't have to have a big Hollywood movie, um, you know, behind you at helming with the budget to be able to produce, to get that effect. Uh, you know, prior to you, like even you take, uh, again, Dick Smith with squibs, 
you know, people would get shot, you know, you know, you wouldn't have any bullet impacts. And I think it's like, I don't know, maybe the Godfather or no, before that with, with movies like Bonnie and Clyde and stuff like that. But for people or even, um, uh, uh, the, uh, what's the name of the, the damn movie? The wild, uh, wild bunch where people are seeing with Sam Peckham, a bullet hits and exit wounds. That was new to people. You never saw that. And then the squib effects and having Dick Smith in the seventies blow somebody's brains out and then you see the like in the in the restaurant scene of the godfather and you see the 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 cloud of red i mean that was just people thought people were killing people so when you get to to the end of the 70s with savini doing this with the squid uh, with the um latex and stuff like that it, i think maybe that also helps the genre you know get a, a kickstart of people are able to do so much more of it and you're able to make a plethora of content and then it looks good for the most part that people are getting into it like you know it's really gotten up to like you're saying to the people's level of uh it almost hits the perfect stride in the 80s there yeah and that's Every, maybe why slasher films and all these different genres come together or and yeah, become so be, popular because you know as we know into the 90s this obviously we've talked about this before you know then when cgi comes in but it what you know like obviously all those things were evolving and so by the mid to late 80s we kind of get the peak of all that stuff because come like early nineties, then, you know, all that stuff is, is peaking, but you know, but it's kind of like plateaued a bit because then CGI yeah. comes in and starts picking up a lot of the, a lot of the load. But in the late eighties, like things just came together and that's why we were able to have like Freddy Krueger and, you know, see, and Jason, you know, all the, by the later, Friday the 13th movies, like it was always kind of a thrill to see what Jason looked like under the mask because each, yeah. each artist had, had like their own interpretation of it and yeah. the, and the avail and the, te- and the technology and the materials were available for them to do things in a way that we never saw before. And it all culminated with the VHS industry. And, you know, di- when day of the dead came out, it flopped, but it found its audience on home video, like so many uh, mo- so many horror movies, but movies in general, it was just a very, everything. It was like a perfect storm of everything was coming yeah. together, <laughs> coming together. And I wonder, I wonder if it, you know, because zombie movies had made such an impact in the late sixties into the seventies. And then with the advent of the popularity of horror films, genres, and then the slasher films coming in the late seventies into the eighties. And you have these established brands of Mike Myers, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and you know, uh, then all the other slasher movies that are below that, like Terror Train or April Fool's Day or The Burning or whatever, that then when you do another z- straight zombie movie in the 80s, it's maybe people like, oh, this is old hat. You know, we've seen this before. Maybe that's another reason why people, it didn't do as well because people, they said reactions to this that people were booing at the end of a, uh, you know, at the at screenings and stuff like that. And people really didn't take this well. They They, they really didn't like it. For, you know, it, was, it wasn't a commercial success when he's writing off of Dawn of the Dead, which was right. Dawn of the Dead was a hit. Dawn, yeah. and, uh, it, I mean, not only did it spawn like a whole industry in Italy, it, you know, it, it kind of was uh, commercially successful here enough where they were offering George Romero like $7 million, right, to do a sequel to it. But then he started working on Day of the Dead after Dawn wrapped and got some ideas, but then he quickly went and started doing like Creep Show and Night Riders and other stuff. And when they got back to doing this, you know, they had other versions of a script, but, you know, he had a pretty, that's a pretty big budget for 84 or 85, $7 million, but they originally initially were talking about working with. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, uh, yeah, this, 
let's see. So much stuff here. <laughs> there is. I think I'm trying to think of what's the best order to kind of cover everything you just to comment on everything you just said. Yeah. Um you know, I we've talked about Romero. I mean, I think, you know, there is a discussion that we could have again about like George Romero and basically inventing an entire genre of a subgenre of horror movie, which is the modern zombie. But we did it, but we t- we likely talked about that in the Dawn of the Dead episode and we certainly talked about that in our kind of tribute to George Romero. So I I don't think we should get too far into that stuff again, but I think, but you're right. Dawn of the Dead made was a huge hit and it's still to many people, their favorite George Romero movie, their favorite zombie movie. For some people, it's their favorite horror movie. Um, coming off of Dawn of the Dead, uh, a company called United Film Distribution Company offered George Romero a three picture deal. And the only caveat of that deal was one of them had to be a sequel to Dawn of the Dead. How cool is that? Now, <laughs> uh, it was a little tricky because another company had made Dawn of the Dead or distributed it or something. So even though, uh, Richard Rubenstein and Romero, Richard Rubenstein was Romero's pro- uh, producing partner at that point, they had worked together, I think for the first time on Martin, um, and then they produced that TV show about the sports in the seventies that, uh, that, uh, Romero been, worked on. Yeah. The Romero kind of dirt. It was like a documentary series, uh, which we brought up in the podcasts on the two of them. So we, again, go check those out because we talk about all this stuff, which I didn't know about Blake hit me too. I was like, really? That they were doing like Pittsburgh local yeah. kind of well, even, content, even, you know, even side more, jobs, even more than that. There's the real popular one that you see footage from is because uh, they did one about OJ Simpson. Back in the seventies when he was, you know, still the juice and a big football star, but, um, towering inferno, but the, but they didn't really own Dawn of the dead. So, uh, it was a little tricky because they couldn't make a direct sequel to Dawn of the dead. They had, they couldn't use any of the same characters, but in a way Romero had already already done that with Dawn of the dead without having it be a direct sequel to night of the dead. But coming off of Dawn of the dead, Romero didn't want to jump right into another zombie movie so he's like let's make a couple other movies and then we'll make day of the dead the last movie so they made night riders which is a movie that i have a a a very strange love for it is very i love it harris it's long and it's it's slow crazy um i love it and i love it's like what it's doing what it's talking about uh but I could totally understand people being some viewers being bored to tears with it. Cause it's just, it's not for everybody. And it, it just, it, like I said, it's slow. It's predicting LARPing live action role playing. <laughs> you know I mean? It's, it's a, what's the common 20 years or whatever the hell, but I love it. And then yeah. the second movie he does is creep show, which is a much bigger affair. Um, and one of Dion's favorites. And we did a, a, a great episode on creep show a couple of years ago for our Halloween extravaganza. So he gets around to day of the dead and, uh, he's written a script for day of the dead. That is m- much bigger in scope than anything he's done before. Uh, Tom Savini has equated it to like the Ben Hur of zombie movies it's the over apocalypse the, now zombie movies yeah. the script is long and there's huge action sequences and uh you know it, it it ends up dealing with a lot of things that later get kind of repurposed for land of the dead 
and we could talk about some of those things in a bit, but sure. what Dion's kind of getting at is they've kind of estimated that it's going to cost $7 million to make that, that original script of Day of the Dead. And before you pause you, Knight Riders, if I remember, just doesn't, doesn't really flop, but it doesn't really, it's not a really huge hit. It's there, right? And it's cool, good installment. And then Creepshow is a hit, if I remember correctly. You know, so, you know, it, it was, so he had that under his belt too. So going into Day of the Dead, they're like, you know, this is, it's like Carpenter doing, um, uh, not, not so much Halloween, but I mean, something after that, you know, it's like Creepshow was kind of a hit with Stephen King involved and on board. So the, he kind of has the clout at this point going into Day of the Dead like that, you know, that this is conceivable having this budget. But knowing his audience and knowing yeah. what people loved about Dawn of the Dead, yeah, uh, Romero refuses to make the movie rated as a rated movie, to have it go to the ratings board and get a rated R rating because he's afraid that to get a rated R viewing, uh, to get a, a, an R rating for the movie, he's going to have to compromise his vision for the movie. So he refuses to. Do, to make it basically try to make an R-rated movie, he said, "I want to make it rated." Now we've talked about this probably many times on the on the uh, podcast. At that time, I don't know about these days, but at that time, if you released a movie unrated, that means certain newspapers wouldn't advertise it. You couldn't run uh, ads and maybe television and stuff. There was some theaters wouldn't take it. So in eighty percent of your business. 70% of your business at the time is seeing something in the theater and seeing ads on radio, TV, newspaper. Uh, the rating system was very important. You know, they really had you under your thumb and it's so ballsy. Like you're saying, if you don't get a rating, you're equated with the pornos. You're the XXXs, you know, so you're playing in houses like that. So uh, theater picture houses. So it's, it's so amazing. Even back then, Romero doesn't want to, he's saying, I don't know if I want to, you know, because it was so hard to get an unrated movie into a theater. But he's still saying, I won't do an R because I don't want to freaking, uh, you know, sacrifice my, my uh, dream or my vision, which is crazy in 84, 85. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess he could have the forethought like, hey, we'll release it unrated on video. But Yeah, but I don't even think you know, he was thinking that. I think it was No, just, I don't either. <laughs> I think he's just like, I don't want to, not cocky, but just he was like, no, that, you know, I have a vision and, and you know, and then the company's like, well, we're not going to spend $7 million. On your vision, if if it's going to be unrated, yeah, they're like we can. Well, we'll give you seven million dollars if you can bring it in and like basically rate it R. But yeah. if you're not going to do it, we can give you three or three point five. We can basically half your budget. That will produce. Now, the irony of it is, I've heard that some people uh, who worked on the film, maybe it was Michael Gornick who was the DP. Uh, I've heard somebody say that, like, you know, the irony of it is that like, had they done it first. You know, before Night Riders and even before Creepshow, like they probably could have got the seven million dollars out of to make the, the the original Romero script, but because they ended up waiting, and I guess because Night Riders wasn't a huge hit, even though Creepshow did really well, you know, there was like he, he you know, there was a little more uh, at stake, I guess, for the Take money gamble. People. You know, it was a little more of a gamble, so. Romero decides to go back and rewrite the script to bring it in in, in like a three, $3.5 million bu budget. 
And, and you even hear kind of Savini like they're like I'm kind of like in forethought. Doesn't he kind of Savini kind of comment like some of the people are kind of glad he kind of brings it down because it is such a magnum opus. It is such a you know uh, the uh, Gone with the Wind of zombie movies that they're <laughs> kind of like this is a grand scale. You know them trying to shoot something like this that uh, you know they're kind of relieved when the script is kind of pared down to like a workable material. I would imagine that people that had to work on it were relieved because you can you know like. Look, nobody wants to work on a sinking ship, you know, like everybody yeah. has the best intentions going into whatever movie they're making, you know, like nobody sets out to make a bad movie. And so like everybody has, is excited. Everybody's, ex you know, wants to do it. But I would imagine when you read something that was at the scale of what Romero originally wanted to do, which was basically there was an island off the shore of Florida. It was, I think it was, took place in 1987. You know, the shit had already hit the fan with the zombies and the governor of Florida ends up like creating a safe haven on this Island for people. And there are shades of walking dead nowadays. Yeah. And they create a seas, they create a, like a, basically a city on this Island and, um, in the swamps, like, in but very quickly it falls into like a caste system where the governor is very much a King and he rolls with an iron fist and people fear of him and at the same time i think they're trying to he's commissioned like the scientists and the military to train zombies to be soldiers or something like that yeah there's a whole shirt system they have zombies like in like you know red shirts blue shirts white shirts to deem which ones are docile which ones are dangerous and there's these rebels and the rebels are the good guys that end up being in day of the dead and there's a shoot that you have zombies in the swamp getting eaten by alligators and the rebels are fighting each other. And then they take off. They discover the island with the army on it. They get caught and they're brought into the army uh, post. And then we have this whole system of, like you're saying, they're training or domesticating these zombies. You have like a uh, bub and, and like these elite zombie fighters who are maybe like the, the red shirts. And you and then the or there's orange shirts that denote humans know these zombies are safe. And you have. Uh, a Stalag 17, which they call this town, which is completely like this. Um, humans live, but there's no laws or whatever. If you got to go live there, it's like nuts. There's, you know, debauchery in the streets, da da da. The roads, the army guys, they're eating dinner while they're watching, watching like cage fights of zombies, very reminiscent of like um, the Mandingo fights, maybe in like the in Django or well, some of these elements you do see even in the remake of Night of Living Dead. You know, I know. There's some themes Savini took that they couldn't present from the original 68. So some of these bleed in, like the idea is who's, you know, the over, who's worse, the, the, the monster, who's the real monsters, humans or the zombies who are just the byproduct of what happened. So all this stuff is going in, but it, it just this, and then, you know, there's grenades going off and zombies really fucked up shit. Like, you know, the roads is putting like grenades in zombies mouths and they're trying, like trying to get it out and they're getting scared. So there's like a lot of crazy stuff going on and. And it's just, it was, uh, it, it was this, I don't know how you do it in two hours. You know, it was, it's, it's, it's just a very big movie and very laden with practical effects in the swamps of Florida with Alec. And it just, you know, um, it just seems like it would have been labor intensive. And for a guy like Romero, I don't know, it's, you know, it's almost like a Toby Hooper situation. Could he have pulled off such a grand scale and have it be all right? Like you're saying, no one wants to be on a sinking ship. It would have been gotten out of hand and become a clumbersome mishmash of a movie or whatever but they have to start paring this thing down because they're realizing it's too big 
the like you're saying the budget so they go through like three or four different versions of the script to condense it all yeah i mean basically you know my my point at the end kind of recapped it there is that like i'm sure yes people were some people were probably like oh thank god we don't have to try to make this thing even though they probably thought it was great and you know they would have be hopeful that the end product would be great but like romero hadn't done anything on that scale yet and probably none of nobody else on the crew had either so I'm sure there was definitely some intimidation about trying to do something so big. I think, you know, and this is something, again, I I keep on saying this because now we've done so many episodes and there's so many recurring themes. This is something that we've talked about on the show before, but I think this is another instance where maybe restriction limitations were a good thing. And maybe not everybody will feel that way about this movie because I know um, maybe even today there it's a little bit divisive, but I think what it causes Romero to do is to really figure out like, what is he trying to say with the movie and bringing it down to its, its core. And then by the late eight, mid to late eighties, we see this with even like they live like Romero's trying to, he's at a point. Romero's always trying to say something in his, movies, especially the, the dead. But Romero has talked about how by like the late eighties, he just felt like there was this huge mistrust of institutions like the government and even the military. And he was seeing like the beginnings of like, uh, the, you know, a deconstruction of like community. I mean, things that unfortunately are, you know, amplified to the nth degree now in many people's eyes, but Romero was seeing kind of the start of this. And like I said, you see it with, they live by John Carpenter, this like, you know, who can you trust and, and, and everything. And so, Romero takes those ideas that he, he wants to explore and he ends up just kind of like bringing them down to a basic level. And I think it ends up, I mean, who knows? I would have loved to have seen the movie that Romero wanted to make then. Like I said, a lot of that stuff gets carried on to land of the dead, but I love the movie that comes out of it. Like, I think it, he ends up, you know, they do shoot some exteriors in Florida like the opening of the movie and where the helipad is. But basically he ends up moving this entire film down into like this, these tunnels, which I think there may have been tunnels in the original script too, but like this became like the main set piece and it creates such a weird and interesting atmosphere and taking the grand scale of like what he's trying to do, what he wanted to do with this huge cast and pairing it down to a much smaller kind of ensemble. I think just works beautifully. And I think the script that he ends up writing for this in a lot of ways is maybe his best script. Like it's the monologues, the characters. Uh, yeah, I think it's just a lot of, it's just like beautifully written. Like, um, the, the character of John, the pilot, uh, Terry, played by Terry Alexander. Like it's such a great character and so well played by Terry Alexander, but like his monologues about the stars in the sky, it's like, it's gorgeous. It's beautifully written. It would be a great like audition monologue (laughs) for somebody. Like it's, he ends up writing a really Jamaican accent. (laughs) He ends up in the sky. (laughs) Romero ends up writing a really kind of beautiful script. Um, and I think. To me, I can only imagine that it was a huge benefit that it had to be pared down to something much smaller in scale. Well, I, I, I 
I completely agree with you. And, you know, I, I will be the first to say there are scenes that do kind of drag when they're getting exposition out, which I have no problem with. But, you know, I can see maybe to today's audiences, people may think some elements are slow. But I, I think you're right. I think it's just everything is kind of so well done. Rhodes, um, uh, his character, uh, Dr. Logan, right? They, they, who they call Frankenstein, uh, Bub. I mean, uh, the, the helicopter pilot and even the radio man, the Mr. Bean stuntman, he looks like, uh, the Irish guy, you know, who just, he's Jesus, Mary, and Joseph the entire movie. Like those, I mean, these characters are like lovable, like characters that you really, really like off the bat. Um, the lead, what's her name? Lori Cardell. Yeah. Um, and, and he doesn't really romanticize her for an era where you're having scream queens being really sexualized. Um, from Adrian Barbeau to Jamie Lee Curtis and stuff like that. And I'm not saying there's any, you know, that, that, that's good or bad. You know, me being a, a male, I used to enjoy that kind of a thing. Um, and still do. Um, but you know, he could have made her more sexy or have scenes where she's taking a shower, you know, anything. And he doesn't do any of that. You know what I mean? It's really just r realistic in a sense of what would be happening at, in a situation like that. Um, and all the different types trying to work together in this really claustrophobic underground. Uh, I like how, like you said, they do bring it underground in these like salt mines or whatever, and it's supposed to be this military installation. So, you know, the the, the earth is so overrun that they're down there trying to figure stuff out. But but at that time, they're already at the end, and they don't know what's going on. And now it's just the breakdown of uh, uh, people in, in particular with the stresses and everything, and it's just. You know, if, if they had a good leader or they had some other people down there or whatever the heck, you know, because even some of the, it's weird watching, it's like having it removed and I haven't seen it for 20 years really, watching it now, bringing all this baggage I have as a, as a 43 year old, it's like, it's, it's so much more poignant in certain ways. Like I understand aspect of Rhodes' character. Rhodes has gone kind of crazy. Someone brought up online how, you know, you notice how like Rhodes is still shaving and still kind of, well, everybody else has a beard or they've stopped, you know, it's like. He's still trying to adhere to this military kind of um, uh, edict and style or some sort of assimilation where everyone else is just trying to give it up. And even the guy, the, the army guys who are down there, you know, or, or I think they're so, they're such assholes and they're, they, there's, the actors don't hold back whatsoever that make you hate them so much, which makes them so much more convincingly awesome and such good roles. And then the doctors in there, the gentleman who played Martin in the other movie, um, John and, uh, yeah, and the lady I just mentioned, Lori uh, Cardell, they're so good. And then uh, Bub, you know, taking a, uh, having a zombie, uh, how crazy is it to, to, to cast like a New York actor to play a zombie with, who doesn't really have any lines, probably just have direction in the script or whatever, and you turn him into like a lovable... You know, like I really, really felt for Bub. Like you, Bell, Bub is almost like a puppy. That, that's like like an animal. You know, like like the the which is interesting. He Romero is able to accomplish in this movie is like you're you start feeling for the zombies in a way. Like you know when they turn the lights off. You know that they're confused and they're scared. You know, or they don't know what's going on and they're getting scared. And I mean, it might be a stretch. I realize now when they're like, oh, they're scared to come out because they know what Doctor Logan's going to do to them. I don't know about that, but. You do realize that they're just as much confused with what's happening as we are. So, you know, it just feeds into those ideas that he kind of presented in Dawn of the Dead with the trace memory, zombies are kind of remembering things. 
So to bring it to this part with Bub, this domesticated zombie, is just such an incredible character. I would love to see just a, I don't know how you'd do it, and I don't know if it would be any good, but I would just love to see a great a story about Bub. And I know there's a, there's a comic somewhere that I think does give the backstory to Bub, which I didn't find that I could read. Uh, but I just, I've always loved Bub's character, and it's just, it's such a testament to Romero's writing to be able to, 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 to create something, to have an actor be able to omit uh, emotion that you get feeling for by the end of the movie. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead is that they're both very much at the beginning of this pandemic, this event. You know, um, it's like Dawn, Night of the Living Dead is really like nobody knows what's going, you know, it's like very terrifying at the, at the yes. very top of it. You know, it's like it's just started breaking and, news and then you know it's it's you know unfortunately now in a weird way like we have lived through something similar so like we understand we can relate to like you know th there that's like february of 2020 <laughs> you know yeah like we're hearing Early march we're kind of hearing about it and then there are some people that are I, I maybe know somebody or somebody's getting or you've gotten sick or somebody's gotten sick or whatever and then you know, Dawn of the Dead's like March, you know, like we're like, yeah. we've, we've got a handle on it. Like, this is a big deal. We should lock down, you know, it's still, but it's, it's still what's happening in the urban environment. You know, the, that's, that's always scary for me. Like the night living dead is like the country, yeah. but then by dawn, it's like what's happening in the cities and stuff, you know, but it's still pretty early down. on. They're still reporting on it. They're still trying to figure it out, but day there's the still day those, um, there's still the, 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 the people, the national guard and the, the people, the militias coming together try to you know you, you feel like some parts are getting a handle on it yeah. you know in some regions or whatever but you're right by the time day of the dead time has passed and it's like now nah, we fucking lost and honestly crazy the crazies romero's movie in between one of the romero's movies in between very much fits into this like you could almost view it as a fourth movie in this trilogy uh but if but just going with it straight as as a trilogy Day of the Dead, you know, we pick up on Day of the Dead where, like, it's been going on for a while. And we very much kind of hit the ground running. So much so that, you know, when, when Lori and, uh, and the crew, Joseph, uh, when Dr., when Sarah, Lori plays Sarah, when Sarah and, and, uh, Flyboy and the, and the radio guy, the Irish guys, when they come back, there's like, there's another grave. I'm like, oh, that's, you Major know, Major Cooper major cooper and we get the sense which i don't i'm sure i picked up on before but this time around it because we had to i had to think about it to talk about it today like it seems like <laughs> cooper was the military leader he was the one holding the kind of the the last semblance of he's like pike dying or somebody yeah you know? like, so uh, when you he know, died like it it Rhodes kind of steps in to the to the leadership role and Rhodes has already fucking lost it so yeah <laughs> So like we're coming in at like the worst time. <laughs> like, and it's interesting to set it that way. It's interesting to set it the day after Cooper dies. You know, we don't even get to meet Cooper. I mean, we do meet Cooper posthumously, but yeah. we don't get to meet Cooper like in a sense of even having a scene of him dying. Like we have that beautiful scene in Dawn of the Dead of what's his face. You know, I'm going to try not to wake up. That's scary scene, you know. So yeah. to, to have that event happen off camera and then this is now you know, the, the military is like, they don't want to fucking deal with this shit anymore. And then, you know, you then look at their side of it. It's like, well, 
you see what fucking you know Frankenstein isn't making. You know he's making those crazy tapes like mommy, mommy. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is that? You know, you know, don't hurt it, mommy. You know, and it's like all and then the shit he's doing. It's it's just it's crazy. It's but, done really well. But the way Romero sets up this community of people, I think, is really kind of one brilliant and two really um, just great in terms of like from a dramatic standpoint of like telling a story. He's basically set up three teams, right? Like he set up them. There's the military guys. There's the scientists. And then you have these two guys kind of in the middle of it all. Who's like, one's like a radio technician and the other guy's the helicopter pilot. And Which they, back then you think about isn't really, uh, I mean, now you don't think about it as much, but back then those are the two, you need the two of them. Yeah. You know, and then, so even watching the movie as a 10 year old, you're like, yeah, you know, they can't fuck with the radio guy because they need to have someone to work the radio and they need the helicopter pilot. They never thought to put a gun to the helicopter pilot's head and say, train this guy how to do this. So those are, they're the kind of, you don't need the scientists, you don't need the army guys, but you need those two guys. Yeah, but it's weird because it sets up like this weird triad, right? There's this triangle happening. And the fact that, and I think one of the things that I didn't like the first time I watched it, when I watched it with you back in like 97, 98, was that the acting on the military side is so over the top. And it's something that I've come to really like about it, but I think that turns a lot of people off. But I think now when I look at, watch it now, like, I feel like it works because like it is this triangle yeah, and it is like this, it is, maybe it doesn't work 100%, but I've come to appreciate the fact that like this one angle, this one part of the triangle is fucking crazy, (laughs) you know, like, and they're power hungry and uh they're at the end of the rope they're desperate and that's like they're like the a backed in you know like when you back a a, a rabid dog into a corner or something and they're just barely hanging on and you have it's they're done well steel uh the guy who plays steel harry gary howard carr like you said a lot of people may denote this as camp or over the top their act performances but I believe I believe every one of them. They're just so nuts. All their uh, their inner goals or their whatever the character uh, you know arc is of what they're looking for. Like it's all believable to me. So you their reactions they're having. Uh, I completely like you're saying now. I'm like yeah. I I I I think they're all solid. The motivations like it works. That and I think it's just an interesting juxtaposition to the performances of everybody else. You know, like, of course we have, uh, Dr. Logan, Dr. Frankenstein, like he's, he's lost it too, but yeah. he's lost it in a, like a more intellectual way, like a less primal way. So his performance is much more subdued. So like, it's this weird, like yin and yang, right. Of performance of like this more s- subdued down to earth performance versus this very scary, you know, over it's the top, screaming. sometimes comically over the yeah. top. And then in the well, middle, that's almost maybe out of com- um, comfortability too. You know, you laugh at it because you're like, oh, you know, it's, but it's because it's so over the top. It's so in your face. It's so loud. You know, it's, it's, it makes people uncomfortable. So you, you know, kind of like you get that out by laughing or giggling. But then you get in the middle of it all, you get the, the helicopter pilot and the technician who Lori uh, Cardell, her character, Sarah, she kind of, she gives them a lot of shit early in the like you, you don't yeah. step up, like you, you know, you don't risk your life for anything and we're trying to do something and you're just doing basically like you're here and you're doing your job, but you're doing the bare minimum. 
And kind of the brilliance of the arc of this story is like the two guys who she's hassling for being, you know, I don't know, assholes for not participating. They're the guys that in the end of the, at the end of the day, they do step up. They're the heroes yeah. of this movie. <laughs> They're the more pragmatic ones of the whole group. They kind of realize, let these people bicker, stay in the background because there's no point in bickering and all this. And then when the shit really starts hitting more of the fan, you're right. They're the ones who save the day, so to speak, and kind of necessitate an escape. And uh, a couple of years ago in the thick of the COVID pandemic, you really weren't going anywhere. Um, Deanna and I participated in one together for Escape from New York, but I, I did a few of these kind of live watch parties for the In Search of Darkness uh, people who make those documentaries. And because um, Andrew, who was hosting at the time, is a friend of mine. And uh, he asked me to come on and do one for Day of the Dead. And we, and the guest on that episode was Laurie Cardell. And in some of and those, we had that Adrian I, Barbell. Uh, uh, Adrian Barbell was on the one we did with Escape uh, from New York. So they must have did that every t- a watch party. Yeah. They have a celebrity. There was a celebrity, and they would basically talk. We would interview them for like the first half hour, and then we would watch the movie. We'd tell everybody, "Okay, we're hitting the play button on one, two, you know," and, and we basically do a live <laughs> commentary. And in some yeah. cases, the guest star would leave after the interview. But in the case of this one, Lori sat and watched the movie with us. Wow. The whole movie. And, uh, she was just awesome. Like it was one of my favorite experiences of doing like a, an internet podcasting, you know, kind of thing. It was, she was so cool. She was awesome. Her insights to like behind the scenes stuff were great. She, uh, atypical to the way some actors are like she was very interested to hear what we had to say about it uh she she said in interviews that like you know she liked the character of sarah and she felt comfortable being on that set because she really was like the only girl but she when she was young she wanted to be a tom she was a tomboy like so she was always very comfortable hanging out with guys and so she she was like you know she felt she expressed during this thing that she felt very much in her element to be like oh i'm you know I, you know, so I love, I love being in a, sit and being the girl in the group of like intelligent men. And so she, she was very like complimentary to us. And I remember, I don't remember what I said. I think I commented on the, uh, the character of Rhodes and, and, um, Joseph Pilato's character, his performance of Rhodes being so over the top, but how it's so be- like a weird, a beautiful juxtaposition between Pilato's, uh, performance of Rhodes over the top performance of Rhodes and then Howard Sher- uh, Sherman Howard's understated performance of Bub and how it's like it's such a great juxtaposition and she's like you should, you guys are really smart <laughs> <laughs> but she was awesome and I will always love her uh for sitting with us and watching it together and just um you know cuz Dion you you've met probably more quote unquote celebrities and stuff than I have with, with the, the nature of your work And it's always just really refreshing when you meet somebody that's just like so down to earth and so cool. And, um, I've had those experiences with composers or people that have written quotes from my books. Like I was telling Dion about Don Mancini, uh, how he's going to help promote the Kickstarter campaign and how he's really awesome and super down to earth and support things. And, but, uh, so my 
that experience of getting to hang out with her for an hour virtually and watch this movie has made me just love this even more. And I think she's sure. she's great in it. I think, you know, for all like the over the top performances that people can complain about, which, like I said, I've come to love and appreciate those performances. There are great performances like Terry Alexander as the, as the helicopter pilot, John and Lori, she has a very difficult role to play, right? She has to be both strong. She has to be the strong female, but she also has to be vulnerable. She's the only, only female in the cast. I mean, we have like extras playing zombies, females, but the only one, you know, against all these guys. And she's like this evolution of the Romero zombie heroine, right? Like Barbara is is useless <laughs> in Night, Night of the Living Dead. She's yeah. She's just catatonic after yeah. yeah. Like and it broke. <laughs> I I don't I don't hold it against her. <laughs> no. <laughs> but poor little thing. <laughs> uh and then Fran in Dawn of the Dead. She's she's the mother. She's like the future of this. She's pregnant. And, she, and she's a producer, right? She's like a news reporter. Yeah. And she's got a career minded woman. Very and, much know. not like a damsel in distress. She's pregnant. Yeah. She's, she's, you know, she's realistic. She says like, look, I need you to show me how to fly the helicopter. And he's like, Oh, yeah. you're pregnant. And he's like, no, she's like, somebody needs to know how to do it in case something happens to you. So yeah. she's already, she's light years beyond like Barbara in terms of like the strong woman. And then we get to Sarah's character who she's a scientist. She's, she very much in the same way as Fran is trying to keep everything together. And she's, but I think Lori Cardell does a beautiful job of playing the, the feelings that Sarah is going through under the surface, you know, like, of course it's written into the script with the nightmares and stuff. We see that like bubbling under the surface, Lori's losing it too, but she's holding her shit together. And the scene where. Uh, spoiler alert <laughs> for anybody has gotten oh, this far. Yeah, when, when he grabs her and hugs her to kind of settle her down after well, she had to cut off Miguel's arm. Yeah. Yeah. Well that, yeah. The scene where they have to cut off Miguel's arm and then, you know, Rhodes and steel and they come and they want to kill the guy. And there's this big standoff and it's, everything's boiling to a head there. And she's got the torch and people are pointing guns at each other. And Rhodes leaves. She's like, screw it. Like he's their problem, you know, whatever. Like they wa finally walked away. And then to so the way she breaks down into, uh, John's yeah. arms, it's just, it's heart wrenching. And you just like, I, this time around, especially like I, it was so beautiful. Like the way it just, you could tell, like, it was just that it was ready to overflow the whole time. But then the it's minute, the, it's the realistic kind yeah. of uh progressions of that happening it the, was so the, it was the cry so to the breakdown it was so real it was like the realest moment of the whole movie for me was like finally it was like in the things settled and then instantly like she just couldn't hold it in anymore and yeah it was gorgeous she did such a great job there's so, like i said for every over-the-top performance that somebody can complain about there's a beautiful moment between actors like uh, Laurie and like I said I just love Terry Alexander's role of John in this his performance is so great uh, oh he's amazing in this yeah he's great and yeah, the guy who plays over... and uh Richard Liberty who plays Frankenstein I think he's great too 
You know, he he was very Jonathan Harris of when I was watching this now of uh, Lost in Space, like you know. But he's but he uh, he kind of holds the line too. I mean, you need a, a he's kind of eclectic, eccentric in a way that you need for that part to be believable in the way he does that. Yeah, I feel like there's something very Jeffrey Combs esque to me. Yeah, ab- about him sure. in general. Like Absolutely. I feel like there's there's a common facial structure, and like I could totally see if you were to like do a a more, um, you know, more faithful remake of this. Like, I think Jeffrey Combs would be an amazing character, uh, person to play uh, Frankenstein in a remake of this. Yeah. Uh, but then again, like, of all the, you know, I'm talking about Laurie and Joseph and Richard Liberty here, but really the, the performance, the hero of this movie in terms of performance is Sherman Howard as Bub. Like, well, Sherman Howard um i'm sorry he he's absolutely incredible and um i guess people would know him for um he did a couple commercials that were pretty notable uh, in the 90s but he was in that episode of seinfeld isn't he i think he's the episode where the the surgery the candy goes into him in the hospital and they have to go watch the operating theater i think that's his episode but he's in a hospital uh, episode um in 2007 uh there was a broadway uh um uh, uh, production of Inherent the Wind with um, Brian Dennehy and uh, Christopher Plummer in it. And I went wow. to see it and yeah, it was it was awesome. And um, uh, Sherman Howard was an understudy in it and he had a, a, a another part in the movie, but I bet you he was probably there if, you know, maybe something happened to Christopher Plummer or whatever. Um, so after the show was over, uh, we ran to the back waiting for them to come out because I wanted to try to meet and get my, I had a poster of it, um, you know, like a five by seven I'd grab because I work in the area. So I took it down from a restaurant. They let me have the poster. So I was going to have people because I know all these people. The, it was an Indian Minar. I don't know if I've taken a Minar. They let me have the poster. So I, I met Brian Dennehy and Brian Dennehy was from Derby, Connecticut, a town over from my mom's from. So I talked to him about that and, you know, growing up in Connecticut, didn't get to meet Christopher Plummer because Christopher Plummer made might have come out a different way. But Sherman Howard comes out. And I looked at him, and of course, Dion, I said, I loved you in Day of the Dead. And he kind of stopped and looked at me, and it was funny. It was kind of the reaction I got from William Sadler by the time I got to around to explain to William Sadler what, I, <laughs> what role I liked him in. And, and Sherman Howard was like, thank you. And he didn't like, know how to take it. He was like, thanks. Like, like he'd never gotten that before, which I can't see how, but I've never seen him do any press on this. I've never seen, you know, there's, there's a couple... I've, as you see the behind the scenes of him being made up by Savini and stuff like that, but it's almost kind of this role where it's like his name isn't even on the picture, you know, and he's just so good in this. And it's like, you know, to get these, you know, um, I think uh, was Plato maybe a New York actor or like in the, the theater, um, the guy who played Steel, I think, was doing stuff in New York at the time. And um, Sherman Howard was so it's yeah. like you get these great kind of theater actors coming in. Lori, and- too. Lori Cardell would. Like he knew Lori because yeah. Lori met him when she was young because her father was Chili Billy from the Pittsburgh area was like the oh, Sven really? Bully-esque. And he is one of the news correspondents in Night of the Living Dead. He's in the movie. Almost playing himself, right? Yeah. Or like he's like, cause he was a TV you know, personality. He was a TV personality yeah. in Pittsburgh. So, uh, you know, she met Romero when she was young, but I, I, at some point in the mid early to mid eighties, she was in New York as an actress and she was on a, in a Broadway show of something or off Broadway, but I think it was Broadway and Romero came to see her in it. And after the show, he said, Hey, I'm, 
I'm doing this movie. Do you want to play this part? So she was also from like a pretty strong kind of like New York theatery uh, background. Yeah. And it's just, it, it really, I mean, I just, I love Bub in the movie. It's just a great character. It's a great execution. Everything about, you know, the subtlety. And then, like I said, as getting older and just, I don't know if I'm just paying attention more or whatever the hell, it's just seeing like, even at the beginning, there's some fans that say like, when you first are introduced to his character, um, she he scares um, Laurie, and Laurie gets scared, and then he kind of like, somebody says he may say sorry or whatever. It's just like the implications of just what his background is. It's just, it's, it's just fascinating. That's the stuff I really like to dive into and let my imagination go wild watching stuff like this. Now, apparently, Bub initially had a very, much smaller part in the script than he has in the movie, and it was... Sherman Howard's performance of Bub that made Romero want to put more of Bub in the movie. So they would try to come up with ideas of like, what could we do with Bub? And uh, Sherman Howard talks about like driving home one day after shooting or something. He had this idea like, what would Bub think of music? You know, so he went in with the idea of like, what if they, what if, you know, Dr. Logan puts a headphones on him and, and tries to teach him how to work the Walkman and here's music. What? And Beethoven's ninth. And Romero was like, that's a great idea. Let's shoot it and see what happens. It's like, well, how would Bub, like, they didn't really know what would happen. Because a lot of Sherman Howard's performance of Bub is kind of improvised. So he's like, oh, yeah. They're they're like, what would, how would Bub react to music? It is so like Stanislavski or whatever, like an exercise. You're (laughs) a zombie and you're getting, (laughs) it's it's like our our acting school. Blake and I's school of acting. You're, You're a zombie and you're, you just got some food and they're giving you a Walkman. I want to see how you'd first react to it scene <laughs> yeah but it really was like that like they were having this conversation and they were talking about like well how would bub react to music and romero's like let's film it and find out like how bub would react to it and so romero was like what music do you think bub should listen to and sherman howard's like beethoven and so they filmed that scene and the interplay between sherman howard and and richard uh, liberty who plays dr logan is so great because basically romero Sherman Howard has talked about how, like, really the only direction he got from Romero was like, Bub, play Bub like he, it's a, he's an infant. Like, Aww. he hasn't yet under mastered how to work this machine of a body that he has. He doesn't have the hand eye coordination yet. Like, he's still figuring out how to work things. So, um, and there, obviously there's the innocence uh, built into that direction too. But he talks about how, like, you know, it was fun to play against Richard Liberty, who was playing Logan, because he would just do things, and Richard Liberty, the consummate professional actor, would react to them, like trying to put the headphone on his ear, and he grabs his hand. He grabs the doctor's hand, and you don't know what's going to happen. Like, that wasn't written in. Wow. Like, like Bub just did that, and then the doctor There's such tension there. And things where he's, like, trying to show Bub how to... Like he wants Bub to hit play and he's like waving his finger in front of his ha- face to try to get his attention. And Sherman Howard said, like, if he moved too fast, I would just prevent, pretend like I didn't see it. So it would make Richard Liberty as Logan be more deliberate with his actions. Like it was like make him act more. There's just like the interplay with them. Like he's trying to show him and like Bub's not paying attention. Then he puts his finger right in front of his face and then Bub sees it. Like he focuses on it and then he starts to follow it. Like all that is just brilliant stuff. And that's all coming out of the mind of an actor, you know, like it was, you know, Romero created the character 
put it on a page. But Romero's real brilliance of, as a director, and this is something I kind of learned through interviewing John Harrison, uh, who was second unit director on this, assistant director in this, and did the score for this, and then also interviewing Donald Rubenstein, who was the uh, guy who scored the movie Martin. I, is that I feel like I've come to think that Romero's like, aside from being like a brilliant mind and a, and a good writer, his real talent was recognizing talent and being a secure enough filmmaker artist to trust in people's talent. And Michael Gornick, who's the DP of this movie, the director of photography is a perfect example. They were working on Martin and Romero was shooting it himself. And I think Michael Gornick was just like running the Nagar. He was running sound. And Romero was like, I can't shoot this and, and direct it at the same time. Do you want to shoot it for me? <laughs> and basically just handed over a, uh, a, a director of photography, a career to this guy. He's like, you know, I trust you to do it. And he did it. Um, Pasquale, uh, Buba, who, yeah, Pasquale Buba, yeah. who edited it. These guys all kind of, he was a partner of John Harrison's and they had a company in, um, Pittsburgh where they were doing video, they were doing film work and they were trying to get work and they knew that Romero obviously by that time had, had hit it big with Night of the Living Dead. And they're like, let's call George Romero and see what happens. And so they find like the office phone number and they call, um, Romero's company's office and Romero picks up the phone. It's like, they were expecting like a secretary, but it wasn't, it was Romero. And they're telling Romero what they want to do. And they're like, we have this equipment and Romero's like, where are you? And he's like, well, we're, here's our address. He's like, I'll be there in five minutes. <laughs> and he came over and they started this. And those guys became the crew on the sports TV show that I was just I mentioned earlier. And, you know, working with John Harrison, they did creep show. Creep with creep show. He's trying to work with a, it's a bigger movie. He's working with more people. Basically like he, Richard, uh, John Harrison gets a call from Richard Rubenstein. The producer is like, will you come and be the assistant director? Like George needs a friend here. Like he needs somebody who he trusts. And because like things are getting a little out of hand, you know, and John Harrison's like, I don't know how to be assistant director. There's like union stuff involved, the paperwork. And he's like, we'll have another assistant director that knows how to do all that. But I need somebody here that can help George run the crew that he trusts. So he goes over and he's working with George and John Harrison was, a, but he was a musician. And so they're talking about the score Romero for creep show. Romero was planning on doing it like he did night of the living dead, which is just like do the sound library thing. But, uh, in listening to the tracks that they got from the sound library, the fidelity of the, the quality of the recordings were not as good as the movie was, you know, they thought it would be distracting Yeah, because they have a great cast in creep show, you know, go back to our creep show cast. And I'm sure I talk about this in creep shows. Well, but so John Harrison's like, well, I'm a musician. I have a profit five. Maybe I can help. I can make it sound better. And that's and. Romero's like, how about you just start writing some music? And so like Romero's real talent is to say like, Hey, like, I see that you have this talent, you have, uh, you know, uh, 
some expertise or at least a a wanting to be uh like a interest and like nourishing that talent and i see that yeah. we see that with savini we see that with john yeah. harrison we see that with michael gornick this guy is just every and they all say like but at the end of the day romero's the boss you know like he wasn't a pushover if he wanted it a certain way that's the way it was done but he gave everybody enough rope you know to to have a little bit of slack so that they could be creative too. And I think we see that with the acting performances here and with Sherman Howard, that was a long way to get back on track here. But I think that's, that's like my, the point I'm trying to make is that like yeah. he, he hired somebody because they were talented and he wasn't, he's not a micromanager. Yeah. And he trusted him enough to, and he was to make some decisions. You know, he said like, look, let's roll it. Let's see what happens. Like how would Bub react to music? I don't know. Let's see how Bub reacts to music. Let's just do it. See what happens. And I mean, I can't even see Sherman Howard's face out of Bub. He's so, you know, uh, you know, he just—it's so amazing looking. His outfit, his getup, how he looks, um, and his choices. Like you said, there, it's like even when they hand him the 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 Colt nineteen eleven, and I just love, you know, first he salutes uh, uh, Rhodes, so they're like, oh, maybe he had a military background, and then they take the gun off, and then he he. He's able to, 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 to cock the gun and he tries to shoot and then he looks and he instinctively looks to where the magazine would be because there's no magazine and he, he makes the connection. There's no magazine. There's no bullets. And then he's like, oh, and he realizes, and then he kind of gets scared, you know, when he puts the gun up, he, re- so it's like all these little, you know, it's, it's going into like, you know, guessing over this from the remembering or past life, or whatever, but it's just so good. And then to the end heartbreaking when he spoiler finds uh low dr logan frankenstein deservedly dead yeah you know uh and then he's like it's like his master he, he came to tell him as i'm about to get start crying it's like he came <laughs> to tell him that he got out he, he was like look what i did i got my chain off maybe you should put me back whatever and then he realizes he's dead he's pissed and uh, fuck and then he sees the gun and he sees another 1911 he's like i'm gonna go fuck some shit up you know <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean yeah. It's just so, you know, you don't know where Bub will land. I mean, you could have Bub, that could be a shoot-off where Bub becomes somewhat intelligent. I don't know. Um, and Bub, I think, they talk about Bub being homaged in The Walking Dead, which I don't recall. I guess if you go look it up, there is a scene where they homaged him. But I do remember in um, Savini's original intention in the remake of Night, he was going to have significant uh zombies at certain points in that movie be you know callbacks to very famous zombies i think like the uncle reg in the house at the beginning the big guy's supposed to be maybe the zombie from you know uh zombie uh on the boat at the beginning and stuff like that and i think there's a scene when they tony todd and everybody gets out onto the porch to try to make it to the pickup truck to go get the pickup truck gas he there's a guy on the porch that looks exactly like bub and i think he maybe lights him on his arm on fire he pushes him off the porch i think that's supposed to be bub such a great Halloween costume, but I think just Sherman <laughs> Howard does such a good job in this movie. Yeah. Bub is so amazing. Um, even when you were talking about the, the oh, sorry, fin- yeah, finish. I was just going to say, before you get into that, I was just going to say, like, it's just everything comes together in those moments. Like, it's a brilliant script, yeah. brilliant direction, brilliant acting. Even there's a line. Discovering the book. When, you know, when, when uh, yeah, but when uh, John Ambliss and, and Laurie Cardell's character, Sarah and uh, Ted, or F- Ted Fisher, the other scientists, when they're watching through the, vine- the, win- the window and they're like, what? You know, they're watching him interact with, uh, with Bub. And 
Logan doesn't know that they're watching. And um, there's just that great moment where Lori's like, it's not what Bub's doing that's important. It's what he's not doing. And like, that's something that like, I always kind of forget until that line comes up. Like that line is totally needed and it yeah. is kind of exposition, but it's also like super important because it is like, he's not trying to eat Logan, you know, he's not like, getting aggressive. He's not flipping <laughs> out. Yeah. You know, like it's such a, it's just, like I said, I think this is Romero's best script, but I, uh, and even you, that, that moment there, I love, I didn't, I don't know if I didn't see it until last night, Miguel. The army guy who's her lover slash soldier, he, to me, I used to just laugh at, I didn't like his performance, but now I feel like he's very, just like a eighties frustrated New York city actor. You know, he's like very <laughs> like, you know, oh yeah, fuck me, fuck you. You know, it's like, I think it's perfect because I do feel like people may go that way when stuff goes down. He's everybody. I think their motivations are sound and I agree with basically 99% of all the performances and choices these people make because of their performance. So when Miguel's losing it, slapping her in the face, whatever the fuck, and she's having to knock him out. And then the moment that she has with uh, Ambulus, um, uh yeah. from Martin. Yeah, uh, Ted Fisher. Too. That's, yeah, that's such a great moment because you see them kind of flirting. Like you see, there's almost like a little spark for a second. I think it's before Rhodes maybe like breaks up the party, but it's such an, another, it's a great moment. Like it's like there's a, there could be a little, you know, they need this, this, it's normal social uh behaviors that they're not getting in this environment of what's going on and stuff like that so uh uh you know i think everything just works it's it's so good um and what i was going to say before is it's like when you watch these movies the, romero also you kind of reminded me of like even connecting them where you look at the end of the night of the living dead it's kind of the uh epilogue is told in kind of like uh snapshots which are almost like press photos that you're seeing like of uh, ben being carted out with the meat hook and then lit on fire in the bonfire. And then when that ends, you get the beginning of Dawn and Dawn's the beginning of that is TV screens, is television. You're getting media reports and because she works at a television studio and that kind of connects it. At the end of Dawn, you see them take off flying away in the helicopter. Maybe they're going to get away. Maybe they're going to, uh, it's positive ending. And then at the beginning of day here, you have them in the helicopter. And maybe when you first for the first time watching, you might say, oh, is this them? Is this the, this the continuation of them from the mall? And you don't know what's going on until they land in Fort Myers and they have all that stuff happen. And um, there is a, the, the, the group, the Gorillas, who did that song, Clint Eastwood, people know. And, and I think it's the guy from Blur, um, from the uh, 2000s, a uh, pretty cool group. Their debut album, the first song on it, which I don't know the name of, has a sample. Hello, is anyone out there? So I was with my friend Martin in Seattle when he was stationed out there and when he was in the Navy and he was playing me this album one night and I was like, that's what in 2001, I was like, what that, that, I was like, that's day of the dead. And I was like, they're sampling day of the dead. It's so, you know, like, it's funny when you see these things, it's like Primus using dog will hunt in, um, uh, my name is mud, which is no, uh, what's that from Tom, Tommy, the cat, one of the songs and which is from, uh, Texas chainsaw massacre too. Like when you know, these asshole Tarek, where you're going city boy from deliverance, it's like, oh, that's pretty cool. But um, I saw that was a sidetrack. But I like how Romero connects these movies. And that's why I always thought they worked night, dawn, and day. It's such a great present, uh, progression. It is literally like the Star Wars or Indiana Jones kind of equivalent to these. And, you know, once you get into Land of the Dead, I really have to go revisit Land because I only saw it in the theater. Uh, and I was kind of upset after I saw it. And I had a bad experience with people in the theater. And, you know, I'm only confrontational in the theater. <laughs> 
So, you know, yeah. people were sh- talking shit and stuff like that. You should revisit it because I, I watched it uh, in preparation for the, that James Hancock uh, wrong reel podcast where we weren't talking about the dead films, but I basically watched all of Romero's in preparation. Exactly. I spent like I started prepping like a I month need, ahead. I'm a sponge. A I met, need everything. A month ahead of time. And I watched I watched all of them. I watched season all the, the OJ footage. That's <laughs> watching everything. But yeah. I decided to revisit it because like, okay. Like sure. because it's you know, it's when I revisited Bruiser also, and I now have a huge appreciation for Bruiser, which I didn't have the first time I I've never seen Bruiser. I saw it. Uh but I rewatched Land of the Dead and and it was better. It was better than I remembered it being. You know, like I mean, I love Dennis Hopper and stuff like that. And the, and it's got some. I think the problem is, I don't know. I didn't believe the the Bub Zombie as believably. You know, he's he's fucking bringing an army with him. Yeah. You know, uh, I I, th- I mean, I liked a lot of the ideas, the hierarchy. You know, the 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 um. What are the haves to the have-nots, the people living in these kind of echelons. I think that's all great, very classic sci-fi going back to like Omega Man, yeah. uh, not Omega Man, uh, Soylent Green. And like, I love all that stuff. And then the rebellion and stuff. It's just maybe how it was done. Well, that's um, all the stuff that was from this original. Script. Exactly. Yeah. The stuff they kind of throw out. And these are all other um, uh, themes and, and, and kind of motifs he's had in all these other stories that kind of come together there. Did you, you, did you? In doing that little experience, you rewatched Diary. Did you watch the other one, his last one? I, I still, you know, you had such an adverse reaction to survival that I still haven't seen it. <laughs> and I don't know. I feel like I'm maybe being unfair and just going to be people out there who are not going to like that. So maybe I, I, I feel so bad that maybe I should go rewatch that again. I don't know if I want to do that, but I don't know. It's just, it, it, I, it was, and then I guess after uh that the last thing romero did before he died he did a a book called the living dead or some sort of thing and then in that he reveals again that these uh, spoiler alert that the end of this movie they don't survive so it's almost kind of this this does seem where you have hope kind of a night of living dead that that's humanity's kind of taking it back dawn i guess there's a humanity there's a hope that they're going to get away and have a life that maybe humanity isn't going to survive but they may be able to restart here too which i don't know it's uh, like I felt when I saw it when I was little that like oh they've made it they're on a beach fishing but then now when I was watching it now and then seeing like the remake of Dawn when you see the credits of Dawn and how horrifying that all is of what happens yeah. to them I'm like just because they got to a beach you know they're out of gas they're on a you know the, the, you know what happens before like in freaking uh, twenty thousand leagues under the sea you're gonna have like a whole clan of zombies running out running down the beach at you or something like that you know so I, it doesn't necessarily mean they're just trying to get a, you know they're trying to find dinner that night and she started her calendar yeah. i have no hope yeah i mean it's it's not i wouldn't say it ends on a downer there's a little no. bit of optimism but it's like a skeptical optimism yeah you know what i mean it's very like, sobering the whole it's, movie it's ambiguous like you really yeah. don't know what that means like i said it, it like they've they've they're going to live another day, but we don't really know what's going to happen to them. I mean, it's what basically the character of John, the, the helicopter, say in the whole thing, said the whole time. Yeah. Like, let's just get in the whirly bird and, you know, go off somewhere. Take it away, o- man. And start over. And you're right. His monologue, I'm going to try to memorize his monologue to be able to do an audition with that because it's such a good, it really grounds the movie and it really lends to their character so much now. You know, when you watch it to realizing it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, 
there's a kind of an there's a there's a uh, um what is not an intelligence but there's kind of a um uh i can't figure the right word of of their reasoning behind why they're not helping why they're not getting involved they're like you know it's like you it's almost like a union thing yeah hey man i'm here to just i'm not i don't you know union guys when you go on don't touch anything else that you're not supposed to touch that's, a, that's somebody else's job you know and like you know it's like when i'm in television and we're moving sets i'm an audio guy and some audio guys don't want to well i don't need to move sets i'm doing with the audio equipment but i tried myself i try to help people and I'm, i feel bad because i'm not gonna just stand there and watch everybody do work yeah. i'll say okay i'll help and then i end up hurting myself and it's like oh <laughs> see i shouldn't have been even touching anything so yeah, well, you, I, you have an understanding of them you know but he puts it in a complete context yeah. of when he gives and that I monologue love, you know and i love that he's blunt about it he's basically yeah. like what you're doing is a waste of time yeah and time's the only thing we got now it's admirable, but it's, 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 it's not gonna, and that's and then to also contextualize what's down there, you know, because you look at it now, it's like, I remembered it being so much more lavish because, you know, there's, when they're driving by in the golf carts and you see like the uh, Winnebago's and campers, you know, I, now it's, that's probably just where the crew's living, you know, the actors and stuff like that. But at the time it was like, they got everything down there. It's such a great idea that we do have these facilities underground in various places that they do keep everything. They have the negatives of all the best movies in the world they have the archives they have whatever and him he's got like the glow the 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 kind of like the appendix of what's down there and he's like you know they have this here this fucking thing chair you know it's like and it's so he's right it's amazing like nobody's gonna get like all this achievement for what and he's very much more i guess not even pragmatic but realistic about it like blunt like you said he's like who cares we don't even need to take this with us you know you know i'm a hoarder at home dion but like, you know, at the end of the world, it's like, what's it going to matter in those situations? You know, it's all for naught, you know? So it's yeah. almost, he's kind of like smacking you in the face and saying like, you know, listen to it, man. And, and he's right. They're not all they're trying to do. What's it really going to, like, what's the end game? Does Dr. Logan want to just start having these four guys corralling thousands upon thousands of zombies to try to get them to do calisthenics or learn? It's like, it's so, um, it's kind of like the big frustration, uh, Lori and the other gentlemen have with the doc. Like, what do you expect to, yeah, you're learning about how a car works, but that's not going to help us get the car working to get us to leave. Yeah. You know? So it's just, it's, just, it's interesting. All these, um, these ideas. And then you could see where sometimes, you know, like the scenes, uh, like I said before, I feel some people think that some of the scenes drag, uh, but I like it all because you're learning all the context and everything. And, and, uh, uh, I, I don't mean to keep bringing it up, but I, if for some reason, this viewing really, I dug the army guys, like I dug <laughs> steel and I dug the other guy, his partner, because it just, it seems like they're natural. This is in, when shit hits the fan, this is what people will be reacting. That guy steel at the end of the day probably seems like a really cool guy because he is hesitant to shoot her when Rhodes is like, I want you to kill her. So he does have a redeeming. And then at the end, it's even kind of sad that he blows his brains out, you know, and he's, and then he's killing the other guy that gets his throat ripped off. And was that maybe, um, that wasn't Greg Nicotero, but somebody there. Uh, and then that other guy who just loses his mind and he's laughing while he's getting ripped apart, you know, which goes with the gore effects. But I just, I love, I think everybody just comes together and make this really, really a cool, a cool, um, uh, uh, like, um, uh, group of actors doing this thing. Yeah. A company. As we, as we wind down, I think we should talk a little bit about the location because it's such a cool place. A wampum mine. <laughs> Outside of Pittsburgh. Which was outside of Pittsburgh. Another thing that Romero does great, brilliant, low-budget filmmaker, is he finds, he finds, he knows of locations and he writes for them. 
You know, this that's again, that's a great thing to do because you need to, if you're a writer, I try to do that with my second book, the private detective book. I like to have like set pieces. You know, it's like you see these movies, like, a, you know, the, the action movies we love. Sometimes the locations either become characters and set pieces. And like you said, didn't mean to cut you off, but this is what you're saying here. It's great to have a, a location in mind to write the story around or have it be a part of to have it be uh, an active participant. Certainly with Dawn, the farmhouse and night, mall and dawn, and now, and then it's also the progression of the, of the, it, it just, everything works on the straight highway of getting all these theories and thoughts, you know, the, the, the um, loneliness of the farmhouse in the middle of nowhere and they're coming out of the woods to being the consumer urbanization of a mall, but you're still packed in in the middle of nowhere. And then this now where you're underground with your head in the sand and, you know, the world's run by zombies and you're still, you know, you got this great location and you're going crazy. Yeah. You're, you're, you're more of the monster than they are. When we did Dawn of the Dead, we talked about how like Romero knew the guy that built the mall or whatever. And so the guy was taking him the on Monroe a tour. Mall. The Monroeville Mall. And he said they're doing a tour and the guy's like, you know, you could hold up in here and survive for X amount of whatever. Okay. Well, they wrote a whole movie based on the fact that's a great that he took this tour of them of this that's one of those new fandangled the uh, mall complexes down there. <laughs> a mall? What's that? And, uh, it was uh, such a great idea for the time, you know? That that was a big thing there. And it's still a great idea. Like it's such a yeah. great uh it's such a great location for, for a zombie. And um, you know, you don't want to retread because we've already talked about this at nauseum, but we like to put people in perspective like back then you know malls have kind of fallen by the wayside with the advent of technology and ordering everything from the palm of your hand but you know that that become the basis of a lot of 80s and 90s or even late 70s tv shows or movies it's like you would go to the mall to socialize do whatever commerce and stuff so you know that was in the mid 70s that was a kind of a relatively new idea malls strip malls outdoor malls indoor malls so it's just a great idea to have a, a, a zombie movie of all things take place in because people used to make an event let's go to the mall in our town or the mall downtown or the mall in the town over you yeah. know uh, with your parents or with your friends and stuff like that so it is something like unlike the salt mines or these these mines here this that was someplace everybody would know or yeah. go to or have a connection with at the time but this is an instance where like romero knew that this limestone mine existed outside of uh, Pittsburgh. And so when he had to rewrite the script, it's like, yeah, I guess he, you know, nailed it down. And they went and shot in the, it was the Wampa mine. It was a limestone mine outside of Pittsburgh. Um, there's a very kind of amazing industrial video on one of the DVD or blue light releases, which is like, um, I guess it was taken over by this place called gateway commerce. And they're making the gateway commerce center. And it was like this video that was to advertise like, Hey, come and this is, you could, you know, basically selling the space for warehousing, I guess, like you could build your offices down here. <laughs> it's like trying to sell or lease off like aspects of the mine for your business. Like we could go and start, you know, scored uh, Saturday night movie sleepovers offices. <laughs> we got a deal on these offices, except they're just outside of Pittsburgh in, in the salt mines. But uh, it was a, very humid, very humid. It was a sold, like, kind of uh, not really abandoned, but that wasn't used as a mine anymore. It was a limestone mine outside of uh, Pittsburgh. As we said, it was a constant. And the reason why it was um, appealing to that one of the big selling points is it's a constant 54 degrees no matter what the weather is outside 
inside, it's like, you know, just naturally climate. And so that's why the stuff that, uh, John, the helicopter pilot's talking about is allegedly real. Like there are government documents stored down there because in the event of like a you know, nuclear Holocaust, like that place is going to be safe. <laughs> yeah. And they they store negatives down there for films because of the climate control. And, um, you know, when they're driving through on the carts, we see a bunch of boats and that's because like in the winter months, you know, the people who, I guess, you know, keep their boats on lakes or whatever in, uh, in the Pittsburgh area, they store them down in this, in this mine. So they have this great location. It's like miles and miles of underground mine. Apparently there's miles of lakes, underground lakes down there. That's, uh, we should shoot our post-apocalyptic, um, what's the time machine, you know, when they go into the future <laughs> in the time machine and you have those people living underground, like our, our mole people. Yeah. There you go. And then, you know, they would go, Thomas Savini talks about how they would go explore, but you'd have to bring like, you know, flashlights and helmets with lights on them. Because when you get to the lakes, it's pitch black. There's no light. Oh, you don't even know. At all. So like you just like find yourself stumble into this body of water and you. I tell you, that's nothing scarier. I was in Ireland and there was these thing called the Owie Caves, which were between the Cliffs of Moher on the west coast of Ireland in Galway. There was uh, someone who was from Ireland was like, well, if you're driving from Cliffs, the Cliffs of Moher to Galway, stop at the Alwee Caves. That was a place we'd go to as school kids. And I said, all right. So it was this farmer had found these caves on his property uh, in the 70s, and they've made it now a public thing. You can go check them out. And it was amazing. You know, you go in there, stalactites, stalagmites, and they had lights that looked nice. But there was a part where they were like, we're going to turn the lights off, and you're going to see how it naturally is in here without lights on. And they turn the lights off, and I've it's I've never been in such darkness in my life where I ha- held my hand up about a foot away from my face, and you couldn't see, you know. So like movies like The Descent or stuff like this, you're saying like being in down, you don't know darkness until you you know you're, you're that dark. It's freaky, and uh, being like that, they would when they would shoot, they would go down there before the sun came out, and then they would leave at like ten eleven at night. So. They lived for like three months without ever seeing the sun because they shot, you know, just like every day they would go in in the dark, they'd come out in the dark, uh, apparently the dust, you know, they said first, like you'd always, you know, when you left, you felt like there was this like film of filth on you. And he's like, but then after a while, like you blow your nose, there's just like all this black gum oh. comes out onto the thing and you cough. Yeah, you're breathing all that he's in. Like, not only is it in, not is it all over the outside of you, but it's also all over the inside. Of you. Yeah. Uh, uh, John Harrison talks about, uh, has told me about, he's like, and he's tried to replicate it in some of the aspects of the score towards the end when, um, Bill McDermott and Sarah are pushed off into like the tunnels. No, because- you know, we should comment on that before we leave the cast as we go but keep going sorry but he harrison said you would just like be standing around then you just hear like the flutter of wings like off in the distance because there were so many bats down there and stuff so i mean it's such a great location and i kind of want to go and we that should be our next trip yeah we should go to pittsburgh hang out down there and do the whole do the whole romero (laughs) tour do the mall again i'm gonna get my (laughs) pennsylvania gum permit because i ain't going down there i'll be so scared Uh, um i love that whole third act there when they um when you know i love the whole idea of them having the pens and taking the zombies out and all that and that's all scary and 
and all the intrigue that leads to of people dying and stuff. It's freaky. Um, but when they throw them in the pen in that third act and it becomes almost like an homage to kind of creep showy with the light, with the lighting, blue yeah. reds. And I love all that. And, um, you know, the zombies and the ways they, the ways they get rid of the zombies with the shovel or whatever, or when a fly boy comes and saves the day and he tosses the Uzi and all of a sudden you get these really like <laughs> gratuitous fucking awesome shots. Like, yeah. You know the guns going off, and I, I love all that, and it, it it's lit so you know, creep showy, beautiful with the colors and all that. Um, I really dig all that at the end and that whole sequence, like that them getting out, um, and the whole sequence at the end too, um, uh, is really amazing. The ways that Rhodes dies, Rhodes's character. Do we need to talk? I mean, the the great Joseph Pilato. Did we meet him when we met? Um, what's his face? Um, at uh, Wishmaster. Remember when we went to one of the Fangora shows and we met? Uh, what's his name? Uh, the Wishmaster. Yeah, yeah. I don't know I if we met. I, him. I, I feel like because when we went that time, we went to a, a Fangora convention many moons ago, and uh, uh, what's his face was there? Um, Dean Kane, not Dean Kane, Hane Hotter, and uh, uh, a bunch of other people. It might have been the Day of the Dead cast reunion. Is that ringing a bell for you? And they were they were playing Day of the Dead upstairs, and we didn't go to any of that. Yeah. And remember, remember, Romero was supposed to be there. And he didn't go. Or am I conflating? Yeah. And he didn't go. Because, and then that might have been the time we met Savini and John Russo. Yeah. Uh, that time. But I felt like there, what's his face wasn't there, Sherman Howard. But I felt like there was maybe Lori, what's her name, was there. Um, felt like there were people there from the Day of the Dead. And I there, thought maybe um, Pilato was in it. He very well there. could have been. Yeah. I mean. Um, I only just thought of this when I was thinking about. Your connection always talking about him and Wishmaster at the beginning. You know, it's his fault that the whole oh, yeah. Wishmaster thing, because he's the drunken um, crane operator or something like that, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think he's great in the movie, too. I, you know, I believe his performance. I think he's awesome. Does a great job. Yeah. I mean, I love him. I love his, like, crazy, like, screaming all the time. I do wish, like, this time around, I love it. It's, I'm not criticizing it, but I, I, there was a part of me that wished that, like, there was a little more of an arc. That like yeah, it was under the surface, kind of the way uh, Laurie Cardell plays Sarah. Like it's all under the surface, and then at some point in the movie, it then explodes. Like there's yeah. just a little like somewhere for him to go because he starts at like yeah, he's a, at ten all the time. He, he's <laughs> yeah. like at eleven, you know. Yeah. He comes flying. He's out over modulating the, the entire time. <laughs> he's got to run out of red. steam, you know. He's got to yeah. set a pace. He's, he can't keep. Uh, yeah, you're right. He, it'd be cool if he had if there was a kind of. Um, I mean, he does try. He does explain his way a little bit out of what's going on of his character, that you know, the understanding of it and his his position. But, but um, that would be interesting. I don't blame him though, because look, at the no. end of the day, like a performance, it's a it's a it's a collaboration, and you know, if you know, there's if I've heard Romero say like they they would do takes, and Pilato would be like, "You can't let me get that crazy. Like you can't let like you have to rein me in, like because it is the director's job. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. like you can." you can blame an actor all day because they're the face of it. But the truth is like someone decided that that's how they should play it or that that take was good enough to put in the movie. You know, like it's, yeah. it's really Romero. If you, if you're going to blame, if you're going to have a prod problem with that performance, you can't blame Joseph Pilato. You have to blame Romero. Like I said, yeah. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I've come to really appreciate it. I do wish that like we got a little more of an arc in terms of like his intensity, but at the end of the day, like I, you know, 
there are a few people that I would love to just watch scream at the top of their lungs more than Joseph <laughs> Mullott. You know, and, and it, it just brings it all together. Um, our joke always would be our line from this movie, say hello to your aunt Alicia. So we said that for years. That was our line between Blake and I. And um, going back to the back of the box, as a as like a six-year-old looking at it, Pathmark or wherever, uh, you know, I remember one of the, if you turn over to the back, one of the shots is of uh, zombies like from the top of the frame grabbing you know, the guy's face, and the, certainly the deaths in this movie, we talk about, you know, Savini, which we've touched upon in other casts, was very proud, as he should be, of, like, doing that stuff where he's able to hide a, a real actor's body below something so that it looks like they have a false body so that they can stand up and move over and you can have all their entrails just fall on the ground, which he he's done in um, a bunch of movies, and this one really, you know, he set the bar of having entrails fall on the ground. And stuff like that. So all again, all his special effects and practical uh, effects are amazing. He's hitting out of the park, and then all the way the, that the various actors die, you know, the, getting their throats ripped off, or somebody getting bit on the the uh, forearm, and then the the, the machete decapitate or uh, uh, um, amputation of of Miguel's arm to how each one of the guys dies. You know, either by you know getting a shot to the head. Uh, some part of their throat, neck, shoulder being ripped apart to even then, you know, that one guy getting his face ripped apart. I mean, even how good it is it when he rips the guy apart and his his vocal cords kind of go a little higher. It's so realistic. And you're like, oh my God, you don't realize the entire time it was the prosthetic and he's pulled apart to the other guy getting pulled apart and you see his eyeball and people's, you know, eating their hands and their finger. It's just so to the end with Rhodes being killed and being ripped apart. And I'm sure people all know that story about like they used real entrails and there's the, somebody had unplugged the mini fridge over the weekend. So on Monday morning when they went to go shoot it, all the stuff had gone off. So it was very, it was like for um, three weeks they went off to shoot the Florida stuff. Yeah. And, and, they and came when they back came and everything back, had gone off. And like they, so the, they all rotted. So they, they didn't have time to get more, gut like actual like pig guts yeah pig stuff. entrails and stuff so they had to when they shot him being ripped apart if you watch the 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 behind the scenes because this is all in a documentary too isn't this in document of the dead maybe they have like part of it being in the dawn the first half of that doc is dawn of the dead and the second half of that might be scenes from day of the dead there's been you a couple of, there's been a couple stories. of cuts of that movie there's been a couple of cuts of that documentary because the original one was just yeah. dawn but it's been kind of extended through the year yeah or like updated but uh, there's also plenty of like the Savini that might have been in the Savini special that he used to have on VHS too. Yeah, you're right that, that you see them and he's like literally you know about to throw up from that smell. But his demise, that whole ending with Bub and Bub chases him, so cool. Bub realizing he doesn't have any bullets, and then you know he gets ripped apart, and you know Bub salutes him, walks away, and then he's saying choke on him. It's like it's so you know <laughs> you know and he rips. It's just it's it's such good stuff. You know it's it's really good. Um, and, uh, I do want to make mention of the book you got me that, uh, was a good basis of reading this. The, it's called the making of George Romero's day of the dead by Lee Carr, uh, K A R R with a Ford by, uh, Greg Nicotero. Um, really cool resource to have about this. And it's almost like a, like a diary entries of them, the shooting the, you know, of what was happening each day and the progression, a lot of great, great, um, behind the scenes photos and interviews and stuff like that. So if you're a big fan of Day of the Dead, you should definitely check that book out. Yeah. And also, as I stated kind of at the beginning of this episode, like John Harrison's soundtrack score for this has become one of my favorite scores of all time. I think he did it primarily on a Prophet 5, which was one of the first like really huge 
synthesizer uh, things that came out in the mid eighties when the technology was kind of changing and become really great for electronic music. Uh, you know, it, it, a lot of it remains with this, um, this Caribbean feel. And that's kind of a throwback to like, he started writing a lot of these themes based on the original script, which was like some tropical Island off of the shore of Florida. And when they did the movie, basically Romero loved it. He loved the music. So he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just like, keep going with it. So a lot of it has like that kind of like this Caribbean beat, um, that one could argue doesn't work for this movie, but I just come to really love his score. I love that it plays often the emotion, the sentimentality, the what's going on with Lori underneath the surface that we talked about in her performance. Some of the bub stuff, he plays it a little goofy. Um, but again, I think that's, it's more, not goofy, more playful, which I think is tied into the innocence of the bub character. Uh, but his score is so great and the stuff with Lori is so great, so much so that I'm, in one of the seasons, the season of Stranger Things that takes place in the mall, I forget if that's okay. the third season. I don't know how many seasons there are now. Uh, but there's a poignant scene between two of the characters, and they actually just needle drop a theme from Day of the Dead, John Harrison's score during that scene because it's, it fits it so beautiful. <laughs> really? <laughs> that it just, wow. it kind of fits perfect. Um, and then he was doing a link to a modern man, a band, like he was part of, like he had elements of. Well, what happened right? was part of the deal was, uh, I, I believe this is the story. You'll have to go and read his chapter and score to death too, to, to confirm it. But my belief what available happened was, where books are sold. Part of the deal was cause look, soundtracks exist to kind of supplement the costs of the movie to try to make more money off the movie. So They wanted to sure. release a soundtrack. So. Uh, United Film Distribution Company said, like, we'll give you $3 million for this movie, but we also have to have a soundtrack that we can release. And part of it is we need songs. You need to put a song in the credits so we can have, like, a single from <laughs> Day sure. of the Dead. So uh, I, I don't know who, I don't think John <laughs> had a lot to do with it, uh, but uh, they went and found this band, and uh, they used John's themes and created songs for the movie. I think there's two on the soundtrack. Maybe there's one during the end credits for sure. Yeah. Uh, I like the music personally. Like, I, I, I do too. I, I mean, do. I like the song that came out of this. Yeah. That's like the stuff in Terminator. You know, I forget the name of the band, um, burning for you, but I forget the damn name of that band, but it's like, those are so iconic. So there's certain movies that have songs or bands that I never really heard of that are in the, that I know the song, you know, that'd be a great album to put out the best songs for movies, you know, and his Day of the Dead is an example of that. With that but song just, at the end, you listen to the credits. I just love the score, and it's—I yeah. uh, love the sound you of it. You said that to me. That was one of the reasons you also, when you pitched this, right, to be this. You like, you know, it's uh, one of the also is just you love John Harrison and you love the score to this. Yeah, particularly out of—is that now out of the library stuff of Night and also the Goblins of Dawn, or or out of the three two or, or three two one Contact, or or is what it do just you, you like Day of the Dead? Is it your favorite, I guess, of the trilogy uh, or is it just uh, the film or, you know, the sc- or the music, the score? Oh, it's my favorite for sure. I mean, I look, I love Goblin okay. and I love yeah. the, the familiar stuff from Goblin for Dawn of the Dead. But like literally if I was going to make a list of my favorite scores, not even horror movie scores, like this would be easily, I put this somewhere in the top 10 along with really you know, like Rocky and, and Star Wars and all that stuff. 
Like, I just, I don't know. I just really love it. I love the music. John's great. He was super, uh, awesome to talk to one of those guys. Sometimes when you interview people, things click, you know, you just have like an instant rapport and it's almost like you're talking to a friend that you haven't seen for a while, as opposed to someone you've never talked to before. And John was that way. Like we just had a really great rapport, um, a good chemistry in it. And it really felt like we were taught. We were just like two guys that haven't seen each other for a while. And we were catching up and, um, we talked a and lot. How about, old is he to us? Is he, is he in his fifties or what's, what's his age? He's older. He's gotta, I guess he's in his sixties. Uh, yeah, I guess he's gotta be right. I mean, okay. Um, obviously he was younger than Romero, but you know, he works, yeah. he's in Dawn of the dead. He's the screwdriver ch- zombie who gets stabbed. Oh in the yeah. Yeah. The You're right. And he's in date. No, he's not in day. I'm thinking of somebody else. Um, yeah, he's in, he's like w- one of the, like the band members and, and night and night riders. There's like a, you know, yeah. cause it's like a Renaissance fair. And there's like a, a, like a group, like a musical group playing Renaissance music. He's in that. And, um, but we talked a lot about him cause he directed tales from the dark side, the movie. Yes. And then and he worked with the producer on that too. Rubenstein. Rubenstein. He directed that and yeah. he scored the, uh, the, uh, gargoyle, uh, segment. Okay. Of, of that. From that movie. Of that movie. And he also did, yeah. he, he scored a lot of, um, and directed some Fish. of the Tales from the Dark Side television show. And now he's scored several segments for the, for the current, uh, creep show, um, television shows. They shot the opening of that with Debbie Harris in my town of Bronxville. I live in Westchester. Just funny. Randomly seeing that pop up. I hadn't seen that in years. Now you said initially, um, to recap, you, you said that, you know, you like Day of the Dead just fine, but it wasn't your favorite and it's grown over the course of, uh, 20 or how many years since you'd seen it now the your uh, affinity for the score was that was that there before your um um accruement of liking day of the dead the picture of the movie more or is it just from doing score to death and then meeting him and then listening to it that your affinity for the soundtrack has also increased yeah it's that by the way for the translation answer me now (laughs) (laughs) my love for the score has come out of score to death you know, it was okay. when, I, when I started doing that, I started, obviously, when I started writing the first book and then I wrote the second book, I started paying way more attention to the music. And then to interview people, I would have to, I would sit and listen to the scores and I'd rewatch the movies and I'd start looking at the scores in a way that I never watched the movie before. You know, like when we do this show, I watch a movie with, I put on, I, I, there's a couple of things we always said. I try to watch it like it's the first time I've ever seen. I try to relive it for the first reimagine it for the first time but i also you have to pay attention because you're going to talk about it the next day when i'm doing for score to death i watch and i pay attention to the score how it emotionally makes me feel in the scenes all that stuff so it's been recent years where his scores become one of my favorites and i think a good place to kind of like wind up this episode especially because we're talking about harrison is that like this was the end of an era, not just for like Romero zombie movies, but for like the people that made them, you know, like this was a, a tight knit crew of people that had been working together for something like 10 years by the time, uh, they made day of the dead, you know, Pittsburgh because of Romero Pittsburgh had this really tight knit, very cool independent film industry that kind of all. Yeah came out of the success of night of living dead. And then Romero trying to make his, you know, b- making commercials there 
you know, making this that sports television show. Like, which is weird because he's a Bronx raised guy. So I always thought he was from Pittsburgh. He just went with the school out there, and then he just kind of, like you know, he had an affinity and stayed there, and then he stayed yeah. out there. And uh, so there was like basically helmed by Romero was this really cool movement of independent film, and you know, it was like we talked about with Savini, like all these effects artists that went through like the school of Savini by, as being apprentices through the seventies and eighties. That's like Romero had his own kind of like film unit, you know, like, and these guys all learned their craft by working with Romero. And, uh, you know, so this is like the last, this is like the band broke up kind of after this one, you know, it was like, yeah, we got uh, Pascal Boba who edited it. His mom's house was the house in Martin, you know, wow. and, uh, my, and he's a legend too. He, 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 uh, edits my favorite episode of, um, Tales from the Crypt, the Morton Downey Jr. episode that was edited by him. Yeah, I mean, they he all just passed away like five years ago or so. I think they so. all went on to have like great careers, huge but, careers. Yeah, um, you know, Savini. This might have been other than the remake. You know, this was probably was this the last thing that Savini did for Romero as a makeup artist. That you know, this is the last time I think Harrison kind of works directly with Romero. Other, you know, as you know, how about Two Evil Eyes? Oh yeah, I guess yeah. I guess Savini comes back. That's and does right before that. they kind of have that um, fallout during the dark half and uh, remake a night. But it was kind of like this group, you know. They kind of they broke off and they went their separate yeah. ways, kind of after this in a, in a lot of ways. And well, the movie wasn't f- successful, um, you know, uh, financially or kind of like um, with um, uh, popularity. And you see where the horror industry is at at the time. And also that year you had uh, Return of the Living Dead come out, yeah. and you had, I think, uh, Reanimator come out too, which is kind of a zombies or dead people. But everybody at the time is, it's Child's Play, it's uh, Friday the 13th, it's Halloween, it's Nightmare on Elm Street, it's uh, this other alien movies at the time, aliens particularly, but other movies. So it's like you see where the, the horror industry is going, the slasher film's kind of waning. So yeah, Terminator was just this before time. this too, so that yeah. was like, it's a changing landscape. Yeah, it's like it's like, so, and people maybe look regarded this as a tired idea. Certainly, until you had a couple consequential films that begot us an entire subgenre that was been for the past twenty years really kicking. That um, I'll be happy to say that one day Blake, while we were sharing a cigarette behind my parents' house one late night, he was over post college, predicted would happen. We were watching the Beyond, uh, and you were like, you know what, to be the next one we should do, we should make a zombie movie because I think that'll be the next big thing. And I was like, I think you're right, Blake. And then we never did. And, and then, then we, we never did it. We missed the boat on that one. Yeah, yeah, it was. And you know, right before 28 Days Later and all that, that was stuff. even. Be- um, was that before the Walking Dead car- uh, comic book? Even? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was. It was around. It was before. I think it was before the remake of Dawn of the Dead. You know, it was like it was 2001, two, three. I think it was even just before. It was definitely before Resident Evil. But maybe it might have been because of Resident Evil. Might have been like they announced Resident Evil. They were going to make a Resident Evil movie, and I was like, we should get on this bandwagon. (laughs) And I think we were we were watching the Beyond, maybe, and we were we were revisiting, you know, um, Zombie, Fulci, Zombie, Fulci's The Beyond, uh, which a great movie. That'd be something to do. And then House by the Cemetery, Cemetery, Cemetery. Um, But we were talking about that, and then that was you know, uh, those are great. Oh, those some Fulci. Anyway. Uh, and then the climax of this is awesome. It's like the, that at the end, when you get back to the to like the what is that? Remember we used to learn about the transcendental film, transcendental films yeah. of like the the day to day, the stasis, whatever gets back. Yeah, 
Uh, at the end of this, you get to that, you get that montage, scares the shit out of me of just zombies uh, eating shit, and you hear like, uh, you know, you the, the moaning in the back, you're in hell, like you get that in dawn, you know, you get that in night, you know, so you get the ending of this here, and when they're able to get away, it's, and it's a very satisfying ending for me with all the, the deaths, and people get their comeuppance and stuff like that, and Bub gets his comeuppance and stuff, and they get away, um, so it kind of wraps up nice. Uh, but then the movie isn't received well, and people kind of boo it and say it sucks and da da da, and it doesn't make its money back. But it did get a home video release. It did get a great um, uh, life on home video, and it was certainly like I had said already, seeing that cover there with other movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or other stuff is very movies you don't fuck with. And this was one of them. And I just can't understate to people nowadays to just think of how badass this movie was back then. You know, you get it. It's like the equivalent of like x-rated gore yeah you know which is yeah. also you can watch this on like abc on eight o'clock on friday night now you know <laughs> you know it found its life on it found an extra life on vhs but i think yeah the turn of the century dvd blu-ray the advent of the internet social media like i think that's why carpenter is bigger than now than ever you know i think yeah all these things kind of came together and um people have found these movies and, and watched them in different, in a different light now. And I think even though this may, this movie may have found a life kind of on VHS post theatrical release, I think it's probably even bigger now and more loved now than ever, uh, just because of sheer availability word of mouth is spreads a lot faster now. And like, it's just, it's the movies that we grew up with have had, such a resurgence of popularity in, in the last 10 years, even, you know, even more, but the last 10 years has been just crazy. And, uh, you know, and God bless George Romero, you know, like, yeah, like I said, I, you know, I've come to, I want to see Martin get the freaking, not my friend, Martin, but the movie Martin <laughs> get Martin's awesome too. Martin McHugh, but I want to see Martin get the, the, the reverence that it does. So, so, deservingly deserves uh you know because people we we had a screening of that in our college we brought this up before and people were fucking laughing at it and we me and blake were so pissed we stood up and we walked over to the teacher and we we're like you tell these people to shut <laughs> the fuck up because we revere this movie and these people are mocking it because they think they're better than us and these people of but uh yeah. you know romero you know i've said it before one of probably the most important and influential filmmakers of the second half 20th century you know like just night of living statement. dead changed the game man. yeah and like i'm sure you could get people like scorsese to talk about how important like sure. you know like people saw that he was able to do it this guy from pittsburgh was able to do it and then toby hooper says oh well like i can make a horror movie and then he makes texas chainsaw massacre and then he, the guys make sam raimi says you know, like, you know, we should make, a, we, I want to make a movie. Let's make a horror movie. All of that stems from the fact that George Romero made Night of the Living Dead in the 60s and then creates the modern zombie, which has led us to one of the most popular fucking television shows of all time, oddly enough. The soap opera. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's just crazy. The, the, the importance of, of this guy, you know, it's. Yeah. And this is just, that's why I had such high hopes for those, the, the, 
the you know the land of the dead and those other ones and i have to go watch diary again but it's just just because i wanted the the master to show them how it's done you know and it's just because uh, maybe and it's perfect how it is night dawn and day or a perfect little trilogy that explain away whatever and you know and then i i really enjoyed the remake of dawn i really enjoyed the remake of night i love the remake of the crazies um uh did not like the remake of Day with Ving Rhames, that other one, Nick Cannon, bunch of people. But um, you know, you certainly get your fair share of shit in this genre. But it's good <laughs> when you have movies that are good, you know. And these are examples of of you know, it 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 really in in setting this up as a trilogy, these three movies, it is a great kind of way to end it on this note of the progression of the ideas and and where the stories are going in the world that it takes place within. But uh, this was fun. It was fun yeah, to do it was another fun. one. Do another, yeah. do another Halloween episode. Um, like I said, you know, who knows what the future holds for uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. At this point, I would say that there will likely be more, but I don't know how. Yeah, we're getting maybe getting too Frequent. old to do to do a regular episode. Well, but, I mean, may, you know, maybe we can do another one before the year's out or something. You know, and seasonally, just, uh, and then we should come yeah, back. Maybe we'll do stuff. one for Christmas because that's your big season. Christmas, I love Christmas. So. Well, we're running out of Christmas movies. We've already done a lot. Unless we're <laughs> going to do like Alistair Sims's, you know, Night and uh, Christmas Carol. But you know, some we can figure something out. But we can. I could see us doing stuff quarterly, <laughs> or less more than that. <laughs> not less than more more than that. Season. I don't know. You know it's for, just hard because it's a lot of work. You know, and we we complain about that a lot. But it's just a lot of work and but, stuff. Uh, getting stuff. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And again, if you uh, feel so obliged, you know, check out uh, Score to Death, The Dark Art of Scary Movie Music's Kickstarter campaign, which is running through November 1st, 2022. Um, you know, it, the, literally can't make this movie without support. So whether it's financial support or just helping to spread the word, get on, you know, get the get the message boards going and bang your get go out in the balcony with, with a with a pan and a and a wooden spoon and and let everybody know that it, <laughs> that it exists any support you can lend it would be much appreciated and uh this was fun you know i love yeah. this movie and like i said yeah it's great is, uh, and it ties it all in it, it ties it all in together this is great great suggestion on your part it's, it's funny enough too that i was just randomly on tv or pluto tv and i was like you know i was like honey this is a really good movie right i haven't seen this in a while and then like the next day you're like well i was like that'd be perfect you know we did what a great uh, excuse to watch it again in september we did the professional because that was uh, kind of a, a a movie that was uh you know part of the fertilizer in which yeah uh, our friendship our grew friendship. and uh, and uh, like i said i always kind of associate romero and this movie with the uh, that same year freshman year of college and uh, us living together so it was fun to kind of take this these walks down memory lane of, of, of those times, not just talking about our childhood now talking about, uh, kind of our early friendship a little bit. 25 years ago, a quarter century <laughs> ago, for Christ's sake, you know, I'm, it's, I'm still of the mind that I'm 22, 23, and I'm no longer 22 or 23. So, so odd, so odd how this thing life works. But, um, and then Blake, You've got um, other things too. You have your book and your um, your your podcast and stuff. Well, score to death. The book the books are available on Amazon. Other book retailers from me directly at scoretodeath.com. You can also join the mailing list and and uh, you know go to the Kickstarter link from scoretodeath.com. 
And of course, follow me on social media at score to death. And, uh, I've been doing, um, Saturday, not Saturday night movie sleepovers. We're doing that right now. I've been doing score to Whoa. death radio, score to death radio over on the cinematic sound radio network. And I have a giant sized Halloween season episode, uh, dropping soon, if not already, uh, this October, uh, where we, I visit the scores of the late nineties post scream slasher boom. And you mean uh, like, I know what you did last summer and I still know what you did yeah, last summer. I have one of my favorite a film and a film music journalist, Rachel Reeves joins me as a co-host, my co-pilot for the episode. And we, nice. We play hours of music from scream, scream Two. I know what you did last summer. I still know what you did last summer. A very special suite of music from urban legend. Cause which oh, wow. Chris young, uh, lends me this. He's, he's edited together the suite. No, not Holy very crap. few people have heard this edit of it, but I'm um, debuting it on That's the show. That's pretty substantial, uh, sub, 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 substantial. You get in this special edit, uh, needle drop from him. We talk about, the mass, we the talk composer. about the controversy of the Halloween H2O score and all that stuff. So it's a giant two and a half hour long, uh, music extravaganza. So, uh, coming off of five episodes of goblin music from the band goblins, <laughs> there's a lot going on at score to death radio. And, uh, awesome. now I'm focusing on just trying to, you know, get this movie made at the, the album that we talked about earlier. Uh, but Dion, you also have books. Tell oh yeah. I've got, uh, I've got books. I've got one called blood in the streets and I've got another one called Morris PI private detective. You can check those out there on Amazon and ebook, audiobook, and paperback. Um, uh, you can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, and on uh, Twitter, and you can see what else I'm doing up there, doing some acting on the side, Hobo with the High Kick, and some other things. Uh, I did a radio play earlier this year called uh, Strange Occurrence out at uh, um, Fort Courage, which is kind of a send-up to like a cold chat, kind of like fan fiction, so um, if you like old radio plays and stuff like that, um, I directed, uh, wrote, co-created, and co-starred in that with the great Moose Matson. Um, and that's really fun. If you know, you have a long drive about an hour you want to kill, you can let the theater of the mind take over. And, uh, I would just say, yeah, check us, keep us, keep looking at our stuff and we'll update you what's going on. And, you know, if there's anything you want to see or check out. Um, and, um, like Blake said, I think we'll be back relatively soon if for something else. And I guess, again, we should thank all the listeners and all the support we've gotten certainly about the last episodes we did the, um, they regroup the side cast. And then the, when we did Leon, the professional, that was great to hear all the, hear all the outpouring, uh, all positive and some negative. Uh, and it's great to, uh, hear, you know, people telling us how much they like. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, actually like quite literally, like the only reason why we're kind of doing these now <laughs> is because of you, the listener yeah, and your support cared enough to want to hear us, um, you know, um, just talk ourselves into turns about uh, whatever, you know, these these great movies that we all love and stuff. And uh, I can't get any more divorced from society now the way I'm going, so I need to have this this connection to, to, to modern life so that I know what's going on in day-to-day, -day, you know. Um, I, I'm certainly starting to feel like the old man who doesn't, you know, who are you listening to nowadays? What's going on? Who's Harry Style? Who? What? What the fuck? In my day, I listened to other things. So it, it's great to, to, to be able to have contact with people and do stuff on the regular and um, hear people enjoy it, say they like it. So. I guess well, till, um, till next time, 
yeah, until <laughs> next time we don't see you. Uh, you know, if the, the God willing and the creeks don't rise, we'll see you really soon. Happy Halloween. Later. <laughs>